Welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselles, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. Namaste, konnichiwa. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo y Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. I hope you're doing great. I hope you're doing fantastic. I hope you're doing wonderful. I hope you're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make your block, to make your space, to make your place a much better place to be, doing it by understanding, unity, listening, learning, and doing all the things that we need to do to have this world move in a positive direction, in a direction where it's going to bring love, unity, harmony, understanding, and togetherness. I hope that you are doing your part to make that happen. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Man, I want to, I'm recording this on a Saturday morning, so I know in about a couple of hours they're going to be starting the Sweet 16, so college basketball Sweet 16, so I'm not going to be getting into that. I'll save that for my next podcast, but I do want to talk about the San Francisco 49ers acquiring the number three pick in the NFL draft, upcoming NFL draft from the Miami Dolphins, who then traded it to the Philadelphia Eagles at the number 12 spot. Want to talk a little bit at the end of the podcast about my Georgetown Hoyas losing a big man and a big piece of their rebuilding the program back because of bad advice from delusional uh, reasoning. I want to talk about all that, and I'll get into all that, but I want to lead this podcast. I want to begin this podcast today with the NBA trade deadline. Interesting. No humongous trades. No, oh my goodness, trades. No, I can't believe it, trades, but there were 17 trades on deadline day. This past Thursday, involving 45 different players. Now, we all talked about the speculation in terms of, you know, what was the main guy who was going to be traded? Who was going to, what guy was going to be traded with the biggest impact? And if he wasn't number one, maybe you would say Aaron Gordon, but in the top two or three, you would have said the person that was going to be traded or the person with the biggest profile, the person who could make the biggest impact for a team that he was going to be traded to was... Kyle Lowry. Well, we can talk about Nikola Vucevic. We can talk about Aaron Gordon. We can talk about Norman Powell. We can talk about all these guys. The one guy who we all thought was going to be traded wasn't. He was supposed to be, Kyle Lowry was, is staying with the Toronto Raptors. The best player, the most recognizable player in franchise history. Maybe outside of Steve Nash, the most influential, maybe Steve Nash and Vince Carter, the most influential basketball player who's ever played in this country of Canada, Kyle Lowry. He's not going to the 76ers. He's not going to the Miami Heat. He's not going to the Los Angeles Clippers. He's not going to the Los Angeles Lakers. He's staying right there with the Toronto Raptors, who right now currently are on the outside of the playoffs, looking in. 
And I'm talking about outside of the playing game to get into the playoffs, looking in. Yusai Ujiri was like, nah, we're not going to go ahead and make this deal. They couldn't make a deal with any of the teams that were hot to trot for him. So, as I mentioned before, Cal Lowry is going to be staying with the Raptors. Now, the 76ers, when all of this stuff was breaking down, when all of this trade talk was breaking down, and all this speculation and rumored and innuendo about where Cal Lowry was going to go, everybody was saying the Philadelphia 76ers seemed like the logical choice. He played his college basketball in Villanova. At Villanova, he's from the Philadelphia area. But uh, when everything was all said and done, the asking price that Masai and the Raptors were asking for with the uh, trade for Lowry was just way too expensive for Philadelphia. So it was reported that Toronto was asking for Tyrese Maxey, Matisse Thibel, and two first-round draft draft picks from Philadelphia in exchange for Lowry. And, you know, Daryl Morey was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, fellas. I really don't think so. I'm not looking to give away all my depth. I'm not looking to give away all my young talent to a guy who's going to be 35 years old. And even if everything is great and he wants to stay in Philadelphia – because he's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. What are we going to sign him to? What? Two-year option? I mean, a two-year deal? Three-year deal? Two years with one year as being an option for a guy who's 38? Who's going to be 38 at the end of the contract? What are we looking at here? Where are we going here? What are we going to be talking about here? And more importantly, is this going to be a situation where if we do get Kyle Lowry, are we the clear favorites to win the NBA championship or at the very least make it out of the Eastern Conference? Yeah, we're in first place right now, and that's fine and dandy. But if you're going to be making a trade like this, if you're going to be going in all in right now and give up the type of young capital that the Toronto Raptors were asking for, then the logical thing has to be like, okay, the only way we can do this, if 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 it's clear as day that Kyle Lowry will give us the best chance or separate us from the group even more or improve our chances greatly enough to win the championship. So in two or three years, when we're not at the position that we're at, because some of the young talent that we have is no longer with us and we don't have the draft picks to replenish some of the things that we need to help our team remain elite or help our team remain the uh, in, in strong contention for the NBA championship, well, at least we'll win it and be, at least we'll have that um, 2021 NBA uh, Larry O'Brien sitting on our sitting at our, uh, at, our, at, our, at our at our desk to realize that yeah the trade was worth it. Well, if that's not going to happen, then there's no way that you're going to go ahead and trade for Kyle Lowry what the asking price was. And Daryl Morey, who's a big swinger, Daryl Morey, who is a guy who is not shy. I mean, you're just having two executives, two executives in Masai Ujiri for Toronto and Daryl Morey for Philadelphia who aren't afraid to, uh, shall we say, go for it. Just see what Masai did bringing Toronto with one championship where he made that trade out of nowhere to get Kawhi Leonard. Let's not forget that Daryl Morey has been big game hunting now for almost a decade when he was with the Houston Rockets and he went out and got a guy named James Harden was nothing more than a really good sixth man the first couple of years with the Oklahoma City uh, Thunder and made that trade for him and elevated his career to where now he's going to be going down as one of the greatest players of his generation. So Daryl Morey and Yasai Mujiri are used to big game hunting. They're used to making bold moves. But in a situation like this, 
Daryl Morey was like, no, nah, I don't think so. So instead of going ahead and getting him Kyle Lowry to add on to the team at the point guard, he acquired veteran George Hill from the Oklahoma City Thunder in a three-team deal. Now, Hill, it seems like he does this almost every year. He always signs a non-guaranteed contract to go to a contending team. And if you take a look at his career, you take a look at his resume, George has played in 127 playoff games in his career, a lot of them with the San Antonio Spurs. But for the past few years, he's been, as I mentioned before, that late-season pickup signed on a non-guaranteed contract to go ahead and make his presence felt. Now, last season with the Milwaukee Bucks, quite didn't make it quite uh, to the NBA Finals or to the Eastern Conference Finals, but he played a role. And he's solid. He's a veteran. He's a career 38% three-point shooter. And he's a professional. He's not going to rock the boat. He knows his role coming into what he's doing. He's had enough experience playing that role where he's not going to be asking for anything different. He's a solid professional. It's something that Philadelphia needs. And uh, Philadelphia is going to be using. I can see George Hill right now in crunch time, uh, crunch time minutes instead of Shaq Milton for the Philadelphia 76ers. So, look, again, the team... If you're speaking about, I can't believe they didn't trade for Lowry, this, that, and the other. A team of Lowry, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid as its core? Ask that question. That's going to be that squad moving forward for the next two or three years. Do you think that team, the window of opportunity with Lowry being one of the main guys, being one of the core pieces in it for the 76ers, winning a title, getting to a championship, if he, besides Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, without the bench, without the young players, without the draft picks, is that team good enough to beat Brooklyn? Is that team good enough to beat the Milwaukee Bucks? Those are the things that you have to ask yourselves. And I think in a situation like this, Daryl Morey said, no, I don't think so. So the Philadelphia 76ers are still in first place. Brooklyn, I'm quite sure they're kind of given a sigh of relief because while the acquisition of Lowry would have improved that team, still don't think they would have been able a full, a full strength, fully focused Brooklyn Nets team. Now, we're, we're going on the assumption for Brooklyn moving forward into the midway point of April and then getting ready for the playoff, which start Memorial Day that we're going to go on the assumption that James Harden is still going to be playing like he's playing at an MVP level, that Kyrie Irving is going to get back and from this personal uh, absence that he took, and he's going to be rip-roaring, ready to go. And more importantly, most importantly possibly, that Kevin Durant is going to be able to come back, shake off some of the rust, and begin playing at the level that he played at before he suffered this hamstring injury. Now, if those things come to fruition, maybe there's a possibility that uh, Andre Drummond when he gets bought out, will join the Brooklyn Nets, even though the heavy favorites for his services are the Los Angeles Lakers. But still, there might be another move or two uh, for the Brooklyn Nets, for the uh, for players who are being bought out. So maybe there's something there that could uh, upgrade their front court even more. But, you know, for the, for the 76ers, I think this is the team that they're going to be rolling with without Kyle Lowry having, having um, George Hill as their point guard of substance. And we'll see if that's good enough. See if that's good enough to get them over the hump and uh, have them beat the Brooklyn Nets. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, 
Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So we talked about Kyle Lowry not being traded to the Philadelphia 76ers. Another team that was strongly uh, considered, another team that was in play for the services of Kyle Lowry in a trade at the trade deadline was the Miami Heat. But the Heat's unwillingness to trade Tyler Hero when they acquired, then they acquired Victor Oladipo, that was good enough for them. Interesting that, again, we're speaking about Toronto here. We're speaking about a guy in Kyle Lowry who might be moving. Uh, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. If you're Toronto moving forward, do, do you want to be the one that's going to be signing a 35-year-old Kyle Lowry to a uh, contract extension when he's saying that he wants somewhere between 20 to 25 mil a year? And this is a team that's already invested in Fred Van Vliet. If you're speaking about the Toronto Raptors, they've invested in Fred Van Vliet. They inf- uh, invested in uh, OG Ananobi. They've invested in Pascal Siakam. So what are we doing moving forward here? What are we, what, what's the plan for Toronto moving forward? So with Lowry, Masai was like, yeah, you know, we want to go ahead and, and uh, trade for Tyler Hero. And a couple of other players. If I'm Miami, I don't do it. Even though Tyler has been slumping, even though, as I mentioned before in my last podcast, that Tyler went to a 10-game stretch where he was shooting somewhere close to around 30%, I believe that his field goal makes and miss over a 10-game span recently. 37 made field goals of 122 attempts. I can only, you can only, we can only imagine how putrid his three-point shooting must have been. When you're taking a look at box scores where he's 4 for 13, 4 for 12, 3 for 12, 3 for 11, 1 for 6, 1 for 7. But yet and still, when you're talking about a guy in Hero who fits that Heat culture, when you're speaking about a guy in Hero who has a rookie contract for another year or two, and when you're speaking about a player in Tyler Hero who has been, really, I guess you could say, the next guy, once Jimmy Butler can no longer be that face of the franchise go-to guy, that him and Bam out of Bayou are going to be the two that are going to be continuing the excellence of the Miami Heat as far as the basketball operation is concerned. Yeah, you got to give me a little bit more than Kyle Lowry for that to happen. And moving forward to trade someone like Hero, if they do, speaking of the Miami Heat, have those types of uh, visions of glory for Tyler Hero being that guy who's going to be the one-two punch, who's going to be the Robin or the Batman to the Robin being at a bayou to have the Miami Heat be playoff contenders, championship contenders in 2024, 2025, 2026? Are you willing to throw that away to get themselves a guy in Cal Lowry who, again, the same situation I used in Philadelphia, you put Lowry on the Miami Heat. Are they better than the Milwaukee Bucks? Are they better than the Brooklyn Nets? Are they better than the Philadelphia 76ers? I don't think so. Yeah, they would, again, of course, any of the teams that traded for Cal Lowry would be better. Of course. The question is, let's take a look at what our goal is, short and long term. Let's see what the chances are of him resigning because Cal Lowry, we're not going to use him for a rental if you're one of these teams who are looking above and seeing the Brooklyn Nets, and seeing the Milwaukee Bucks, and seeing the um, seeing the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. We're not going to then just give away some assets for a guy who's going to be a, a few months rental. 
So what's the plan here? What's the objective here? What's our goals this season? Miami, the goals every year for the most part is to win a championship. They're not If they're not going to be in a position in a particular year to win a championship, Eric Spolstra, Pat Riley, Mickey Harrison is going to be doing everything that they can to position themselves in a very quick way to go out by hook or by crook to coddle a team that can compete for championships. With the acquisition of Kyle Lowry, if they would have gone to, if Lowry would have gone to the Miami Heat, still don't think that would have been good enough to uh, have the Heat win a championship. Now, you know, they, they made some moves speaking about Miami to improve. Not only did they get Victor Oladipo, but let's just say, for instance, that the trade was made. They let, um, they let Tyler Hero go. Now you have Lowry. Now you have uh, Bam on the Bayou. And now you have Jimmy Butler as your as your threesome, as your top three guys. Are those top three guys better than Joel, Ben, and Tobias Harris? Is a team, would a team of Kyle Lowry, um, Kyle Lowry, Jimmy Butler, and Bam on the Bayou for the Miami Heat, would that team be able to compete with that threesome, the three main players, the three core players, the three best players on that team for Miami if that trade was to go down and Lowry was with the Miami Heat, would they still be in contention? Would they be serious threats to a team that had Giannis on it as far as his main guy guy is concerned? Would it still be there with, of course, the Brooklyn Nets having Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden? Would the Miami Heat still be at that level? Would the Miami Heat still be that good with Lowry, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler out saying No! Not in a four to seven game series. Yeah, you can surround that squad with, um, depending upon who they also traded for along with Tyler Hero. I'm quite sure. I don't know if there was a been maybe the same guys that they would have traded to get Victor Oladipo. They would have included in the Toronto deal. So we're speaking about Kelly Olynyk and a couple of others. But even with the surrounding pieces around that threesome of Lowry, Alabayu, and Butler. Adding a Duncan Robinson and an Andre Iguodala, and that, that team still wouldn't be good enough, in my opinion, to beat either the 76ers or the Brooklyn Nets this season. So what are we doing here if you're the Miami Heat? If you do give away Tyler Hero, it's not going to be happening. As I mentioned before, this was this is a guy who last year, Heat executives, Miami Heat scouts, were talking about Tyler Hero has a chance to become a better basketball player in the next couple of years than Devin Booker of the Phoenix Suns. You're going to trade away that for Kyle Lowry, a 35-year-old Kyle Lowry, who doesn't substantially improve your chances enough to uh, come out of the Eastern Conference and or win a championship? Uh, You don't do that. You don't do that. And again, when the opportunity for Victor Oladipo came for Miami to obtain, that's exactly what they did, and they're moving forward. So you cross the Philadelphia 76ers off the list as far as the leader for Cal Lowry, then plan B, which was the Miami Heat. You cross that off the list because the Heat's unwillingness to trade Tyler Hero. The Lakers and the Clippers didn't have enough assets to make anything like that happen. No other team could be involved in a trade situation like that to make it a three-teamer to where maybe the Lakers or the Clippers could have gotten themselves a Kyle Lowry. So the Clippers went ahead and signed, signed Ray John Rondo and hope that Ray John shows up for the uh, playoffs because he didn't show up during the regular season for the Atlanta Hawks in the season before that. He didn't show up for the 
regular season for the Los Angeles Lakers, but playoff Rondo is a much, much, much better player than regular season Rondo. So the relationship that Ty Lue has with Rajon, the fact that he understands, the fact that the uh, he's basically being obtained for the uh, playoff run for the Clippers because they desperately need somebody of Ray John's uh, experience and expertise at the point guard position to uh, get those guys into a position to uh, win a championship. The Clippers did what they needed to do. There was talk that they were very interested in Lonzo Ball. There was talk that they were very interested in Ricky Rubio. But when everything was all said and done, they just didn't have the assets. Now, they traded Lou Williams as part of the deal to the Atlanta Hawks. I don't think uh, Lou Williams would have been good enough for say, a team like the Minnesota Timberwolves to let Ricky Rubio uh, go to the Los Angeles Clippers. Don't think that the New Orleans Pelicans, having Lou Williams on the team, another guy who can't guard anybody, don't think that would have been enough along with any other filler for the Clippers to obtain Lonzo Ball to make a trade like that happen between the Pelicans and the Clippers. So the Los Angeles squad did everything that they could. And as I mentioned before with the Lakers... Again, we, we don't know what the situation is with LeBron James. We don't know exactly the injury situation with Anthony Davis in terms of what are they going to look like when they come back from the injury? How are they going to perform? How many weeks? How many games? How many days do they need to play before they round back into the form which made them the devastating duo that they were when they won the championship and also for the um, uh, majority of the season this year, so... We will see. We will see. So what do we do now if you're the Toronto Raptors? Toronto, what do you do? Canada, what do you do? What do you do with this guy? Is it a loss? Do you sign him back? Well, Toronto has two things that can maybe come out of this. Even if Lowry walks at the end of the season, number one, they can still trade him at the end of the season and do a do a signing trade if he espouses or as he says, this is the team I want to go to. Toronto then can work out some type of a signing trade with them. And they would still have his trade exception if he walks away from nothing. Something that the Boston Celtics didn't take advantage of for the most part with the 28 or 30-something million dollar trade exception that they had when Gordon Hayward decided that he was going to bring his talents over to Charlotte and leave the Boston Celtics. The best thing that Boston did as far as the draft is concerned, or as far as free agency is concerned this past Thursday, to go out and get themselves Evan Fournier from the Orlando Magic and also trade Daniel Daniel Tice to the Chicago Bulls, which I guess clears up an opportunity for Robert Williams to uh, go ahead and mature with more playing time, along with Tristan Thompson to lend his skills to the Boston franchise and Boston uh, four. As far as the core is concerned, of Kimball Walker, um, Kimball Walker, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart. So, good victory they had last night over Milwaukee. It looked like those guys made 85% of their 20 something threes that they shot. So, it was a good shooting performance last night by the Boston Celtics in their revenge win over the Milwaukee Bucks. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And you know what? Toronto wins. Canadians, basketball-loving fans in that beautiful state up north or that beautiful country up north. Hey, look, Toronto is 18-27 and 27 overall. 
They're sitting in 11th place in the Eastern Conference. It, there's, there's still got to be some belief that there's still some championship DNA left in that squad. There's still some been there, done that, we can do it again. There's still some hubris. There's still some arrogance in terms of, hey, look, man, we're only two years removed from winning an NBA championship. And yeah, Kawhi was important, no doubt about it, but damn, he wasn't the whole goddamn team. The year after he left to go to L.A., we were still a really good basketball team. Now, we've been put in some pretty bad situations this year. We're playing basically on the road the entire year in uh, Tampa Bay. Let's see what happens if we can get ourselves into the playoffs. I'm not saying that we're the favorites. I'm not saying that we're going to be super dangerous. I'm not saying that, you know, Brooklyn and Brooklyn and Philadelphia should be, you know, shaking underneath the shaking underneath the bed going, Ooh. but, I mean, you know, we, we still have Fred Van Vliet. NBA champion. We still have Pascal Siakam, NBA champion. We still have OG Ananobi, NBA champion. And we still have Nick Nurse, NBA championship coach. Let's see what happens. Let's just ride this out. And as I mentioned before, at the end of the season, we still have options to get something moving forward in a positive way, even if we don't obtain Kyle Lowry for the upcoming season. So let's just go ahead and do this. Now, you know, maybe in terms of Gary Trent Jr., the guy who was uh, acquired from Portland in the deal when they sent uh, Norman, when the, uh, the Raptors sent Norman Powell to the uh, Trailblazers, Powell was very uh, uh, was very valuable this season, averaging close to twenty points a game and providing pretty good defense while shooting over forty two percent from the three point line. But uh, let's see what Toronto does. I I still think there's still that attitude. That, hey, you know what? Just get us in there and let's just see what we can do. Let's not go ahead and punt on this season. It, it might have been a, it might have been the validation of Toronto just giving up if they would have gone ahead and trade Kyle Lowry uh, or just gotten anything for him. If, if Messiah didn't get exactly what he wanted, then, um, you know, it would have been a situation where you don't want to get, you don't want to also, you know, get in a situation where you're, you're stuck with players who you might not need moving forward for Lowry. If the old adage of, you know, just trade them, just trade them because you're going to lose them. Okay, we, we might lose them, but sometimes to trade them just to trade them because we might as well get something because he's not coming back. Well, if you settle and you get players who don't fit your culture or players who don't fit what you're doing or players uh, who are not uh, going to be... Um, have the responsibilities of winning, helping your franchise win, then what was the point of trading Kyle Lowry just for anything? You want to be smart in these situations. And the Toronto Raptors brass with Masai Ujiri at the head of the table making the decisions, they're smart. They're smart. So they're not going to be doing anything to jeopardize the short-term and the long-term success of the Toronto Raptors. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So we're speaking about the NBA trade deadline. So when everything is all said and done, and yeah, we still got Aaron Gordon to talk about. We still got Victor Oladipo to talk about. Yeah, we still got the Chicago Bulls to talk about. But I want to ask a question now. With the Miami Heat making these decisions, with the Miami Heat now making these acquisitions, do they have enough to really become true contenders in the Eastern Conference this season? They didn't have to give up Tyler Hero or Duncan Robinson or Kendrick Nunn. Those guys are going to be important players. And Nunn, I think that he was hurt a lot by the COVID 
and the change of responsibilities. You remember last season, Kendrick Nunn was one of the two or three guys that was considered to be rookie of the year for the job that he was doing in Miami. Then COVID hit and everything was turned topsy-turvy and then himself, Nunn got um, COVID and they went to the bubble and then he fell out of the rotation and he really didn't come back into the NBA Finals. So it was a situation where I mean he was kind of all over the place. Now, if they can solidify his responsibilities for the team and give them some consistency in that, I think moving forward, Kendrick Nunn is going to be playing even more of an important role than a much more important, significant, impactful role than he had when he was uh, in the bubble last season with the Heat. So there's another guy that the Miami Heat didn't have to uh, give up, and he he's going to look to be prominent in what they do moving forward this season. So now you have Hero, you have Duncan Robinson, you have Kendrick Nunn. Now the acquisition of Victor Oladipo didn't, again, have to give up any real parts. Ken- Kelly Olynyk was a rotation player, but he was expendable. So when Miami traded for Oladipo and they sent Houston, Avery Bradley and Kelly, Kelly Olynyk and a couple of uh, pick swaps to the Rockets, hey, look, the Miami Heat acquired a two-time All-Star now, Oladipo has not had a very good season this year, despite averaging somewhere around 20 points, 5 assists, and 5 rebounds for Houston after being dealt to uh, Indiana. Turned down a two-year, I believe, $25 million a year contract extension, but not, hasn't been playing up to Oladipo-type standards that we saw at the beginning of his tenure of his employment with the Indiana Pacers. But this season, he's making only 40% of his field goals, shooting 32% from the three-point line, but here's the good thing with the acquisition of Victor Oladipo for Miami. Number one, he wanted to be there. Number two, he's going to have to prove that he's that he's the one of the pieces. He's one of the solutions. He's one of the reasons why the Heat are Eastern Conference contenders. He's also going to be given responsibilities to where he's going to be able to handle them. I don't think he's going to be starting, but I would love to see Victor Oladipo be that guy that comes off the bench. Sort of like, and you know, this is a Pat Riley thing. Pat Riley is always, especially when he was with the Lakers, always has gotten to these guys who best were past them a little bit, but still in a much reduced role where the responsibilities were not buried. It was very concrete and simplified what they need to do. You saw that when... Pat Riley, basically, when he was the coach of the Red, uh, the uh, Lakers, resurrected the career of Bob McAdoo and brought him in for the 1983, well, 1982, 83 season, something like that, where he brought him in. And, and basically, the guy who was the NBA MVP when he was with the Buffalo Braves and averaged 30 points a game and was the face of the franchise and was the main guy of the franchise during that time, well, McAdoo wasn't, that going, wasn't going to be that anymore. But guess what? The Lakers didn't need for him to be that. All they needed him to do was go out there and score. It was the same thing when the Lakers acquired Michael Thompson from the uh, Portland Trailblazers to compete with Kevin McHale and the Boston Celtics. The number one pick in the draft of Minnesota long, long ago, we don't need you to be that guy for us right now. What we need for you to do is guard your former teammate, college teammate, Kevin McHale, rebound and play defense. That's all we need for you to do. Well, Riley has done it again, I believe, with the acquisition of Victor Oladipo. Look, the, the stuff that you did that made you an all-star in Indiana, we don't want you to do that. We don't need for you to do that. We don't desire for you to do that. What you need to do is you need to come off the bench and you need to get some buckets and you need to play hard. 
That's it. That's all. See Jordan Clarkston's role with the Utah Jazz. If you need any type of examples of what uh, I'm guessing the Miami Heat want Victor Oladipo to do. Now, we might not, the Miami might not need Victor to go, you know, Jordan Clarkston in Utah crazy in terms of the shot selection is concerned where Clarkston has the greenest of green lights. But I think Oladipo still has enough juice in the tank juice in the blender shall we say to be a guy if he's going to be playing 10 15 18 minutes a game to be able to go out there go balls to the wall make your presence felt and then that's it and then that's it so in in that situation and if Oladipo was playing well you know what down the stretch in some games when it's crunch time when it's winning time you'll be you'll be playing in that situation so I think as of right now that's the best role I think Victor Oladipo can play for the Miami Heat. But the, he'd also acquired Trevor Ariza, and he's going to be important because in the Eastern Conference, you're going to need somebody, a wing player, who's going to be able to, I don't know, what, I don't want to say the word guard, but you need somebody who's going to help slow down, bother, annoy the scoring machines at the wing forward positions in the Eastern Conference, like the Brooklyn Nets with Kevin Durant, the Celtics with Jason Tatum, the Milwaukee Bucks with Giannis Adenikupo, Ben Simmons of the Philadelphia 76ers. These guys who are of great um, presence and great impact for their squads, you're going to need somebody, if you're on the outside of the three or four looking in, to uh, guard. Who's going to guard Jason? I mean, who's going to guard Jason Tatum? Who's going to guard Kevin Durant if you're the Miami Heat? Andre Iguodala can't do it for uh, 25 to 30 minutes anymore. He might be able to do it for 10 or 15, but if you're going to have Kevin Durant playing 35 minutes a game, if you're going to have Giannis playing 40 minutes a game, if you're going to have Jason Tatum playing 38 to 40 minutes a game, if you're going to have Ben Simmons out there playing 30 to 35 minutes a game, who else are you going to have? Who are going to be the other guys that are going to take up the slack of anywhere between 20 to 25 minutes to guard these guys if you're the Miami Heat. Again, if you only have if you only have um, Andre Iguodala to do that for 15 minutes a game, who else is going to take that assignment? Trevor Reza can at the very least give you five to eight minutes per half, possibly, to do that. And then the other time you just you just hope and pray. So that was an acquisition of Trevor Ariza with a specific uh, plan in mind for him to be that guy. We don't, I don't know exactly how much Trevor Ariza has left, but you know something is better than nothing. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Houston Rockets. <laughs> Jeez. <sighs> how you feeling, man? How you feeling about them Houston Rockets, huh? It's tough to be a Houston Rockets fan today. It was tough before. I mean, when you're losing 20 games in a row, you, you, you saw the emotional toll that it took on Steven Silas. God bless Silas. God bless his heart. What he's going through his first year as a head coach. But just a complete and utter disaster for the uh, draft or for the uh, trade deadline with the Houston Rockets. And also the whole situation with the trade of James Harden. Do, do, do you realize that Houston could have traded James Harden to Brooklyn earlier this season 
They could have acquired Karis LeVert and Jared Allen for him. Now, Karis LeVert went with Indiana or with a three-team trade. Instead of going to Houston, he went to Indiana, and he had to play the season because of medical reasons, but he's going to return and come back. And when he does, he's a very good scorer. He's a pretty good player. He would be a really good number three option on an NBA championship squad of importance. He would be a solid three, awesome number four on a team that could win an NBA championship. Much better than Victor Oladipo. And with Jared Allen, now I know at the time you had Boogie Cousins, but come on, man. Did you really think Boogie Cousins? Raphael Stone had to know that Boogie Cousins was not going to be the long-term answer. Jared Allen was a guy who was a defensive stalwart, doing great work now for the um, Cleveland Cavaliers. The Rockets could have had both of those guys. Instead, they chose Victor Oladipo, who they then traded for basically a bag of basketballs and nothing else to the to the Miami Heat. So when everything is all said and done, and you're speaking about James Harden, former MVP, playing like an MVP, top four or five player in the league for close to a decade, the most unbelievable scoring option, the most unbelievable scoring talent that we've seen, the most versatile scoring uh, offensive player that we've seen, did a lot for Houston. Yeah, he came up short in the playoffs, no doubt about it, but the success that Houston had before and now after James Harden has got there shows how important James Harden was to that uh, franchise. So when everything is all said and done, outside of Akeem Olajuwon, Elvin Hayes, Calvin Murphy, you trade, maybe Rudy Tomjanovich, did you want to argue? No, 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 no I'm not going to even argue. He's much better than Rudy Tomjanovich. Um, so basically, let's just say this. So you have, at the very least, the fourth best player in team history, still near or in his prime as a basketball player. The Houston Rockets traded him for Avery Bradley, Kelly Olynyk, Dante Exum, some Rudinus Carusis, or whatever the fuck this kid's name is, and some late first-round picks and some swap picks. That's it. That's all you get for James Harden. That's all you get for a generational great who's playing like an MVP this year. That's it. Disastrous. Horrible. One of the worst trades that can go down in NBA history. Especially the Brooklyn Nets turn around and win themselves an NBA championship, make it to the NBA championship. And James Harden, if if he doesn't win the MVP, finishes in the top two or three. Anything James Harden as far as either not winning the MVP or not finishing in the top two or three, it's all bias and it's all bullshit. And it's all personal grudges that writers have because of the way that James Harden acted and his way to get out of Houston. So the only reason why James Harden wouldn't win an MVP this season, or at the very least finish second or maybe a close third, the only reason why someone would not vote for James Harden MVP or put him at the runner-up is because they're still angry and mad at him for the way he acted dealing with COVID in terms of earlier in the season when he was running around clubbing without a mask and taking pictures and putting it on social media of him not wearing a mask and how he dogged the Houston Rockets basically to get himself out of um, to get himself out of Houston and go to the team that he preferred, which was the Brooklyn Nets. 
So it would be personal animus that would keep James Harden out of the serious discussion of the MVP. Nikola Jokic, awesome season. Joel Embiid, injured. LeBron James, injured. Giannis has won it two times already. Damian Lillard, he's out there in Portland, and Portland isn't winning enough. Luka started playing too great, started playing great too late. And Dallas is still fighting for uh, a playoff spot in the lower tier of the Western Conference. So, really, a lot of it you can just say is by default when you're speaking about MVP consideration. But James Harden doesn't get the MVP this season. The way he's playing right now, if he continues to play at this level, it's only because people are still butthurt by the way that he acted first, trying to get himself out of Houston, and some of the things that he did to get himself out of Houston. So, yes, first and second on that one, which would be a, a shame, a crying shame. Wendell's World of Sports... I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us talking about what's happening, what went down in the trade deadline. The Chicago Bulls. How about this? Huh? They upgraded their squad. Don't think that they're ready to uh, challenge for the NBA championship. But hey, how about this? The Chicago Bulls are starting to act like a big market franchise. Hey! <laughs> Guess what, Chicago? Gar Hurd, John Paxson. Your market isn't Sacramento. Your market is not Orlando. Your market is not Salt Lake City. Your market is not one of these small, small cities. You're in Chicago. Start acting like it. Well, they were aggressive. Well, they were bold. And they got themselves uh, Nikola Vucevic. All-star. Took advantage of the Orlando Magic saying, fuck it. We're done. We're done. We're done being mediocre. I wish that the Washington Wizards would have done the same thing that the Orlando Magic has finally decided to do. Look, we're just going to get rid of everybody, and we're just going to rebuild. We have a good, solid coach, Steve Clifford, and we're just going to rebuild. We've got a guy, Jonathan Isaac, who's coming back from an injury next season, so that's one piece. Marco Fultz showed us something. He's going to be coming back next year after tearing his ACL, so we'll see about that. But uh, other than that, some of the guys that we got on this team who are good all-stars or pretty good players, they're not really contributing to winning a championship, and they're not bad enough to where we can get into a position where we can really have a strong chance to get a number one, number two, number three slot in the upcoming NBA draft, which is supposed to be very heavy with the top five. They say after the top five or top six this draft, the upcoming NBA draft for 2021, off the cliff it goes. So if you're not part of the top five and top six and you don't have the opportunity to draft yourself a Kate Cunningham, an Evan Mobley, a Jalen Shrugs, a Jalen Green, a Jonathan Kaminga, if you're not in a position to draft those five, then after that, it's a fucking crapshoot. Top players number six to 26, who knows? Blindfold yourself, swing as hard as you can at that 6-26 to 26 pinata, and pick up the candy. It doesn't matter what it is, because they're kind of like all the same. So if you're the Orlando Magic, it's like, well, if we're going to be bad enough to where we're going to be the number 8 pick in the draft, well, then what's the difference between drafting number 8, drafting number 6, drafting number 16, drafting number 20? 
for the most part, it's going to be a crapshoot. So we need to do everything we can to stink out loud this season and get ourselves the best chance to get ourselves in the top five. Amen. Awesome job by the Orlando Magic. So because of that, guys like Aaron Gordon, Gordon, guys like Nikola Vucevic, they were available. And um, the Chicago Bulls and the Denver Nuggets said, said thank you very much. Sure, I wish Tommy Shepard and the Washington Wizards could do that. As I mentioned before, when they made the trade for Russell Westbrook at the beginning of the season, now the Washington Wizards are hell-bound on being mediocre. That's what they are. They're not looking for this franchise to be good. They're not looking for this franchise down the line to be elite. They're not looking for this franchise in the here and the now or the future to be uh, NBA championship ready. Now, Tommy Shepard and Ted Leonis will sit there and shake their head and laugh at me and go, <laughs> oh, you simple-minded simpleton. Really? You really think that we're looking to be um, mediocre to bad for the next four or five years? What are you doing then, guys? You really think Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal is the answer? I'm sorry, I'm talking about another team. My bad. But it's just, oh, my, my squad. But, uh, yeah, so the Orlando Magic doing the right thing. We're going to stink out loud. We're going to get ourselves a really good draft pick, and we're going to introduce him to Jonathan Isaac and Markel Fultz. Maybe Mo Bamba gets better. I don't know. I don't even know if they're going to offer him a contract after his rookie deal is over. But, um, you know, the, Terrence Ross is still on the team. You got a really good coach in Steve Clifford who can coach him up. So we'll see. We'll see if you're the Orlando Magic. But, you know, Vucevic was available. Aaron Gordon was available. So the Chicago Bulls said thank you very much. They upgraded their team by acquiring Vucevic along with El Farouk Aminu, the, the general, or the, what was he, the Nigerian general or something like that. They acquired him from the Magic for Wendell Carter Jr., Otto Porter from Georgetown University, and two future first-round draft picks. So Orlando gets... Um, Wendell Carter Jr., who a few years ago was also a lottery pick. Let's see if we can resurrect his career again. If anybody can, it can be Steve Clifford. Otto Porter, I mean, you know, solid player, decent player, decent NBA player from Georgetown, but, you know, he could be a, he could be a rotation guy. Um, and then two future first-round picks. Let's see what happens. So the Bulls, on the other hand, they get themselves a player in Vucevic who can take some of the scoring burden off Zach Levine and can now also put Laurie Marketing into a better role because Marketing, I think, was trying to be positioned as a guy to be that 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 one A guy along with that along with Zach Levine. The, the the super tandem, I think, was the goal when they drafted Marketing out of uh, Arizona, put him with uh, Zach Levine, and let's go on from there. Don't think that's marketing's place. And now Vucevic taking over that responsibility, I think makes marketing a much better player, makes him a really good third option. Maybe not good enough for the Chicago Bulls to make any noise in the playoffs for real, but I think it helps the career of Lori Marketing. And you've got some scoring now. You've got some uh, really good scores coming uh, uh, playing for the Chicago Bulls. You've got a coach in Billy Donovan who's, who's had success before when he was with Oklahoma City. A guy, a coach in Billy Donovan who overachieved a couple of years with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So let's see what they're going to do with that. Let's see where they go. They also 
pulled off a three-team trade, speaking of the Bulls, and acquired 21-year-old guard Troy Brown Jr. from my Washington Wizards. And here's a really good addition, I think. Daniel Tice, as I mentioned before, from the Celtics. So now you've got a squad right now in the uh, Chicago Bulls who are currently in 10th place, so they're still in the playoff uh, playing game contention. They're one and a half games behind Indiana and Miami for the eighth spot in the uh, NBA playoffs in the Eastern Conference, so they wouldn't even have to have that opportunity to play in the play-in game. They're two games behind Boston for seventh place in the Eastern Conference. The only thing that the Boston Celtics did to improve their squad was to uh, get Evan Fournier. Don't, don't know if that's going to be enough. Um, and they're also two games ahead of Toronto for 11th place. So we'll see now. Move, I don't know exactly who's going to play defense on this team. Because you have a whole bunch of guys now who can't play any defense. From Colby White to Marketing to Vucevic to Zach Levine. So I, I don't know if they're going to try to be a quasi-Brooklyn Nets team. And just let's just concentrate on trying to outscore people. Let's just see what we can do to try to outscore the bad teams. And we'll just, I don't know, maybe we can win 35 to 40% of our games. Uh, against the contenders, that'll be enough to get us into the playoffs. I think the goal for Chicago this year, same with my Washington Wizards, let's just get into the playoffs. It's been a while since Chicago has been in the playoffs. And I think the goal for this season, especially now with the acquisition of Vucevic, is to get into the playoffs and start building from there. Now, if you're speaking about building, Vucevic is a guy who's been playing now close to a decade. He's 30 years old, so it's not like they're acquiring someone who's 24, 25, who can, for the next five, six, seven years, help grow with Zach Levine, who's still relatively young in his NBA career. But still, this is a situation where, you know, it gives it gives them some building. It gives them something to build around. It gives them something to where if we can go ahead, find somebody who can play some defense, maybe find somebody who can run the point, because Colby White is not a point guard. He's a shooting guard in a frame of a point guard's body. But if we can find somebody and build some build some, some some talent around Vucevic and Zach Levine, accentuate their strengths and minimize their weaknesses as far as basketball players are concerned, then we might have a chance. So if you're Chicago, again, you guys are finally, with this move, starting to act like a big market team in, in that regard. And again, a stretch five like Daniel Tice, if you're not going to play any defense, or if your defense is going to be weak, you might as well put Vucevic and um, Daniel Tice out on the floor together for a few minutes to see how they work. Because as I mentioned before, I think Tice is a guy who can stretch the floor. Vucevic can stretch the floor a little bit and play inside with his back to the basket, something that Tice is not really comfortable in doing. And it opens up the driving lanes for Levine, especially if you have Kobe White on the floor, who's also a guy who's not afraid to shoot and shoot from the outside. So interesting moves by the Chicago Bulls, again, with the understanding, I believe, from my assumption, from the outside looking way far away, is that the Bulls are going to try to do everything they can just to get into the playoffs, and then we'll move forward from there. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Talking about the NBA trade deadline, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of the uh, trades that were made on Thursday, Denver Nuggets made a bold move. Speaking about the Chicago Bulls making a bold move, what about the Denver Nuggets, huh? 
great move to upgrade their team. They traded for Aaron Gordon from Orlando and gave up on Gary Harris, RJ Hampton, and also gave up a pick. So basically, this was a fantastic. You could say that the winners of the day, as far as the trade deadline is concerned, were the Denver Nuggets because they got the best player realistically available that was actually traded in Aaron Gordon. I think that he's better than Vucevic. And they didn't have to give up any of their core player rotation players to do so. They didn't have to give up a Will Barton. They didn't have to give up a Michael uh, Porter Jr., most importantly. So just speaking of talking about giving draft picks, I guess the thought process for the Denver Nuggets is, look, you know, our, our, our draft picks are going to be somewhere in the late 20s. You know, I mean, you're gonna, you're not gonna find too many Jimmy Butlers. You're not gonna find too many Draymond Greens. You're not gonna find too many Monty Ginobili's. You're not gonna find too many of those guys drafting in the 20s. So if you want the, uh, if, if Orlando wants that in return for Aaron Gordon, fine, we'll take it. We'll do so. So with that move, if you're a Laker fan, now what do you think? Denver has somebody who can, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to go there. How can I say this nicely? I don't know what bothers the right word, but at least make LeBron work a little bit. Gordon, who is a hybrid four, maybe play a little three, but I believe on defense that he can get in the way of LeBron just a little bit, not shut him down, not stop him, none of that bullshit. But at least he's another body to uh, put on LeBron in the playoffs. And you still have Jamal Murray. You still have Nikola Jokic. You still have Michael Porter Jr. I mean, this is the team right now in the Denver Nuggets who's aiming, who sees the Los Angeles Lakers being wounded. They see the L.A. Clippers in somewhat um, an inconsistent state. And they see an opportunity to go for it. They remember what they did last season where they made it to the Western Conference Finals. And they said, the opportunity is now. We, we, we don't know what the outcome of LeBron and AD is going to be injury-wise. Let's go for it. And let's do this. And for what they had to give up, RJ Hampton is unproven. Yeah, he's a rookie from Australia and this, that, and the other. And he did this. We don't know. We don't know what kind of player he's going to be. Jerry Harris, who was a great defender, but he's been too injury prone. He's been too unreliable. He's not even in the rotation anymore. I don't even think that he's playing in terms of right now because of injury. So this was a major upgrade for the Denver Nuggets. So if you're the Lakers fans, what do you think? You better hope LeBron comes back. You better hope AD, who I believe right now is starting his next phase to get back on the court. Hope those guys get rip-roaring, ready to go. The Lakers didn't do anything at the trade deadline. There was talk that possibly, you know, um, they were going to go and head, try to get themselves another big. You're going to rely on getting Andre Drummond. That's going to be the uh, player that's going to ease some of your concerns down the stretch, his acquisition. All right. Again, LeBron, I'm still going to hang on the... I'm still going to hang on my thought process that as long as LeBron and AD are rip-roaring, ready to go, regardless of where the Lakers begin their journey to repeat, that uh, they are the strong contenders. But 
the Denver Nuggets, with the acquisition of Aaron Gordon, said, whoa, whoa, wait a second now. If you are going to go down that street, if you are going to go down the championship bill, if you are going to go back to uh, your residence on uh, championship lane, uh, the roads are going to be a little bumpy. We're going to uh, put a little speed bumps. We're going to put a little, uh, uh, we're going we're, we're to have some, uh, some folks out there to slow you down just a little bit. So it was an interesting day on Thursday for all the trades that were uh, brought up, that weren't brought up. Some of the players that were moved, yeah, would have been a little bit more sexier if Bradley Beal would have been, you know, included. There was discussion that possibly the Indiana Pacers were looking to uh, rebuild and DeMontis Sabonis was, uh, c- could be had for the taking if a team was desperate, crazy enough to do it. But uh, for the most part, I think it was a day for the NBA trade deadline for the, some of the moves that the teams, uh, the the players that some of these teams acquired, it was more than just flash and interest. If you're speaking about the Denver Nuggets, if you're speaking about the Miami Heat, even with the acquisition of George Hill for the Philadelphia 76ers, I think these moves represented that the NBA trade deadline on Thursday was all about a day of substance. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss and get down on today in the world of sports. Just a few hours away from the Sweet 16 in March Madness. I won't be going over those games, but um, I'm just trying to get this done before those games start. Before those games start so I can go ahead and watch that. Man, I am tired also. Boy, I am tired, tired, tired. But uh, I press on. I move on. I want to talk about, because we mentioned, I talked about the trade deadline for the NBA on the last segment. Now, I want to go ahead and talk about the NFL, the free agency. I know that I've been a little derelict in my duties, discussing everything, getting down with the um, NFL free agency, talking about, uh, you know, who did what and who did when. I know I mentioned briefly a couple of podcasts I did, uh, a couple of podcasts ago I did, speaking about, you know, what the Washington football team did, what the New England Patriots team did, some of their acquisitions and some of their uh, free agents and how great that is and how wonderful it is and how impactful it is and discuss some of those things. Are they really going to be the class of the NFC East if you're talking about the Washingtons? Now, I guess Ryan Fitzpatrick skins speaking about the moves that the New England Patriots made. Are they now real challengers for the AFC East after 20 years? I get to say that New England 
being only challengers to the AFC East. I still don't put them anywhere close to the Kansas City football team or the um, any of those squads in terms of winning the Super Bowl. But how close did they get to competing? I guess it's almost like the LeBron James situation when you're speaking about the New England Patriots in terms of, you know what, man? Just, just, just get me near the playoffs. Just get me in the playoffs. And I have the X factor that can get me through anything, which is Bill Belichick. Unlike LeBron James, who's actually on the court playing for a different sport with the Los Angeles Lakers in terms of, hey, you know what? With the Lakers, mention it all the time, especially this uh, recent uh, discussions about the Lakers with Anthony Davis and LeBron James down that, you know what, just get L.A. in the playoffs and somehow, someway, LeBron James will find a way to make it happen. Feel almost that way moving to another sport to use that comparison, not with a player in the NFL, but with the coach in terms of Bill Belichick. You know what, just somehow, someway, get New England in the playoffs and somehow, someway, Belichick and Josh McDaniel and those will scheme away for the Patriots to be competitive and win and make a bold move and make a strong move and make a strong play for the championship. But again, when you have Ken Newton as your quarterback, and I, I know, I know, I understand everything that you guys are arguing about. I understand that he had COVID. I understand that he was doing well until he came down with COVID and then the injury. I understand that he didn't have the true offseason to get acclimated with the Patriots and the schemes and the plays and the play calling and the playbook. I understand all those things. But, um, that that wasn't stopping the Cam Newton, who many people think can still be a franchise quarterback. He's no longer going through that door. He hasn't that Cam Newton hasn't appeared in years. So why all of a sudden now is he going to appear for the New England Patriots? Now you could also say because he's with the Patriots, because he's with Belichick, because Josh McDaniels is the offensive coordinator, they can scheme and they can get the most out of uh, Cam Newton. Okay, that's fine and dandy, but look and see who his offensive weapons are. He doesn't have a plethora of offensive weapons at the wide receiver and running back position. And this is the guy mainly who's going to be used like a college football uh, wishbone quarterback almost. So how dynamic in terms of getting the ball down the field, how vertical they can be for an entire season can Cam Newton be the way he is right now? What he brings to the table right now? What his credentials and strengths are right now. It's not going to be happening. And as I mentioned before, I'll get to the Miami Dolphins in a minute for what they did. In the AFC East, you really think the Patriots, with all these moves, all of a sudden now are going to be better than the Buffalo Bills? Are going to be better than the uh, Miami Dolphins? And that's just in one division. You're already now speaking that the Patriots, with the move that they made, fine with the tight ends. Fine with a couple of mediocre wide receivers that they brought in. All of a sudden now... Because Cam Newton's going to have an offseason to learn the system that all of a sudden they're going to be competing with the Kansas City football team. They're going to be competing with the Cleveland Browns and the Tennessee Titans and those type of teams. Come on, man. You know better than that. I hope you know better than that. Bill Belichick is great. Bill Belichick is wonderful. But the Jimmys and Joes most of the time beat the X's and O's. And Belichick can scheme up some mean X's and O's. But he ain't got the Jimmys and he ain't got the Joes. So... It'll be interesting, but that's just some of the free agency talk that I was getting into and expounding on and giving my thoughts and opinions. But the trade of the day that happened in the NFL through all of this free agency talk with the San Francisco 49ers moving up to acquire the number three pick in this upcoming draft, trading with the uh, Miami Dolphins, who then traded the number 12 pick to the Philadelphia Eagles so they could move up and take Philadelphia's place 
and a draft order at number six, according to Adam Schefter. So the Dolphins finished Friday's move with the number six pick in this year's NFL draft. And I get you to say the most important and multiple future first round picks as part of the trade. So Miami also has the 18th pick in this year's draft. So again, Miami sent that number 12 pick, number 123, and their 2022 first round pick to Philadelphia in exchange for the number six pick and the number 156 pick in this year's draft. So to update the draft order, if you would please, thank you very much, everybody. Take out your pen and paper and write this down. The updated NFL draft order, which will be happening later on in the month of April. The number one pick, of course, remains with the Jacksonville Jaguars, as long as the number two pick still with the New York Jets. Now, though, at the number three pick, that is owned by the San Francisco 49ers. The number four pick goes to the Atlanta Falcons. Number five, the Cincinnati Bengals. Number six, the Miami Dolphins. Number seven, the Detroit Lions. Number eight, the Carolina Panthers. Number nine, the Denver Broncos. Dallas comes in with number 10. The New York Giants have the number 11 pick and the number 12 pick go to the Philadelphia Eagles. So according to Schefter, the 49ers have been attempting to move into the top five for several weeks. They've discussed the number three through number five picks with the Dolphins, the Falcons, and the Bengals, and they decided to go with number three because, A, it's better than four or five, and also because they were satisfied with the options that they'll get after the picks by the Jaguars and the New York Jets. This is according to sources, and with the belief that the Jaguars are going to be drafting Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence, no-brainer, and then there's a strong possibility, I'm imagining, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that the New York Jets are going to go ahead and take Zach Wilson. He had his pro day on Friday and seemed like he did well in terms of throwing off of uh, off balance and off foot and all these type of things. So it looks like the Jets are going to be going with Zach Wilson at number two. So that's going to leave the San Francisco 49ers. People are, I heard uh, Chris Sims talking about they're going to uh, be in a position to draft uh, Mac Jones of Alabama. Shit, if you're going to draft Mac Jones, you're going to do that with a number three pick? And you're going to go ahead and do that over Justin Fields or Trey Lance? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get that one. Why? You, you wouldn't need to trade to the number three pick if you were looking to get Mac Jones. Most of the, the mock drafts have Jones going to the New England Patriots and they're in the teens. So I, I don't know. They wouldn't have to move. They wouldn't have to move up if they were looking for Mac Jones. So that's kind of a head scratcher for those on the inside saying that Mac Jones is their guy. But um, according to reports also, the 49ers are not going to use the number three pick to draft the starting quarterback. Notice I said draft a starting quarterback. Sources told uh, Schefter that Jimmy Garoppolo will be the starting quarterback and they have no uh, plans to trade him. Could you please read between the lines? Could you read that again for me, please? Yeah, just read that one part about uh, Garoppolo. Exactly. Jimmy Garoppolo will be the starting quarterback and have no plans to trade him. Could you please kind of read between the lines when you talk about that? Jimmy Garoppolo will be the starting quarterback and have no plans to trade him. That doesn't mean San Francisco won't draft a quarterback with the number three pick, right? Jimmy Garoppolo will be their start, will be the starting quarterback. Are we speaking about for training camp? Are we speaking about for OTAs? Are we speaking about the preseason? Are we speaking about... The entire regular season? Are we speaking about a situation where they're not going to be drafting a quarterback at all? What are we talking about here? And they don't have any plans to trade him. Okay, that's fine. You mean trade him now? You mean trade him by draft day? 
You mean trade him by the season starts? I mean, it'd be, it could be a situation where, okay, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be the starting quarterback and they have no plans to trade him. I could definitely believe that if the 49ers are going to use the number three pick to draft um, Trey Lance out of North Dakota State. I, I can definitely see that because many prognosticators, the Mel Kuypers and the Todd McShays of the world, are saying that, you know what, the quarterback with the most upside might be Trey Lance, but of the top quarterbacks who could be drafted in the first round, of all of them who are going to be in that position, the one who was not ready to start is going to be Trey Lance. So the ceiling, if you take a look, including Trevor Lawrence, they say the ceiling for what he could become is Trey Lance. But the one who is the least experience to be starting in the NFL next season. It's also going to be Trey Lance. So if you're the San Francisco 49ers and you believe in the hype that the 49ers, um, Trey Lance is going to be the guy that one, two, three, four years down the road can be that quarterback that can lead your team to a championship, but he's quite not ready yet, then you owe it to your fan base. You owe it to your season ticket holders. You owe it to your advertising partners to at the very beginning put put the best team on the field as possible. Jimmy Garoppolo right now at the quarterback position gives the San Francisco 49ers the best chance to win while Trey Lance is still learning. You can almost say it was the same situation when the Kansas City football team, before they became the champions, it was a situation where they drafted Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes was raw. His first year coming out of Texas Tech, he wasn't ready to play. He wasn't ready to be a starter for that team. That's the reason why Alex Smith was the starting quarterback for that season. And when Mahomes was ready to uh, do his do and do his thing, he moved in. Alex Smith moved out of that uh, position at the starting quarterback. So, yeah, Garoppolo, you know, we're not trading him. We plan to be the starting quarterback. That almost tells me that the 49ers might be more interested in drafting Trey Lance at number three more than uh, Mac Jones. But we will see. We will see. And, and you know what? I, I, I think with Jimmy G... I think it's the situation with him is I, I think that he's a better quarterback than most people think. Yeah, he's more of a system than superstar at that position. He's never been a pro bowler. Back up for Tom Brady. Learned under him. But this is a situation where he's had injury issues. He missed a lot of time last season because of injury. And we also have to remember this, though. While, you know, we might downgrade and poo-poo and negative on Garoppolo, Jimmy G is only two seasons removed from being a Super Bowl playing quarterback. Yeah, you can talk about the running game being the strength of the offense. And you can talk about how great that defense was for San Francisco the the year they made the Super Bowl. But I'm sorry, for the 2019 season, the year that Garoppolo and the 49ers made the Super Bowl, he threw for over 3,000 yards. He had 27 touchdowns. You you remember that game against the the, um, New Orleans Saints at the Superdome? When he outplayed Drew Brees, and he had an awesome game, loved the game where late in the fourth quarter where they needed one more first down to win the game that George Kittle caught a pass about three years, about three, uh, felt like three years, about three yards short of the first down, and he just basically took the entire city of uh, New Orleans on a ride with him for about 10 yards till they got the first down, clinching the win for the 49ers. But yeah, that was a game where Garoppolo was outstanding. And we, we speak about what's the difference between Garoppolo is really not useful or really is not uh, what we would call quarterback worthy to win a Super Bowl and someone who doesn't have that moniker. 
Super Bowl 54. Career-defining moment for Jimmy G. With 93 seconds left to go in the game after blowing a 20-10 lead in the fourth quarter, Garoppolo missed a wide-open Emmanuel Sanders. Remember that? Overthrew him? With 93 seconds left, could have uh, given the 49ers the go-ahead touchdown. Garoppolo, his game and his reputation as being a Super Bowl champion-style quarterback has never been the same. The season after they made the Super Bowl, the 49ers went 6-10 and 10 this past season. Now, of course, you could talk about, hey, you know what? Well, of course you're going to go 6-10 and 10 when you have Garoppolo and Nick Bosa and Richard Sherman and George Kittle, among others, injured for most of the season. But that's the deal, man. NFL, not for long. If you know it, and I know it, and we all know it. So I... I look at Garoppolo, man. I, I just say that he's in the same category of quarterback as someone like a Jared Goff before the injury, gruesome, gruesome injury, Alex Smith. Garoppolo is on that same tier as an Andy Dalton or a Teddy Bridgewater, right? I mean, when those guys are going well, that's what I think uh, Garoppolo is. Just a good, solid, system-type, playoff-caliber uh, quarterback as long as you have a strong supporting cast around him, good defense. But he's just not someone who's going to be consistently a top 10 to 12 Super Bowl winning quarterback on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, he'll have his moments where he looks outstanding. Yeah, he'll have his moments just like Goff did, just like Andy Dalton did, just like uh, all those quarterbacks I just mentioned did. But on a consistent basis through 17 weeks, that's not going to be Garoppolo. Garoppolo is going to be C+. C. Maybe he'll give you an A performance, but most of all, he's going to be C, C, C plus, B minus, C plus, C, 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 A, C, B minus, C. That's that's what he is. If the responsibilities that you're giving him, as far as being the quarterback for your football team, is to uh, do more than just rely on a strong running game and rely on a strong defense. Or if you're asking him to make chicken shit, or excuse me, make chicken salad out of chicken shit, because the skill players that you have, the running back, the wide receiver, the tight ends, aren't up to um, playoff caliber or elite uh, elite talent uh, level for your squad. So that's Garoppolo. I, I think that he could be a, I mean, the way he's moving on right now in his career, eventually he's going to be a bridge type of uh, quarterback to where he, you do draft someone who you think is going to be your starting quarterback that you're grooming to be your starting quarterback, especially if you draft that quarterback in the third or fourth round that he might need a year or a year or two to uh, get ready to play. I think Garoppolo could be that guy to be that placeholder for that quarterback in waiting. But I think the opportunity for Garoppolo to be a franchise quarterback for multiple years with one franchise and have that franchise hopes be of, of, winning a championship, I think those days for Jimmy G are over. I don't know if he's still out there running around with the uh, with the one female that got him a lot of attention, but, uh, attention, but uh, yeah, life is pretty good for Garoppolo. He's making a boatload of money. He's uh, having sex with porn, porn stars, and uh, he's rich. So, I mean, you know, what's, what's there to complain about? They can't go and take that money back. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So in the NFC West division, for the 49ers to make this trade, to move up to the number three position in the draft, and going on my assumption that they're going to use that uh, 
pick to draft e- either Justin Fields or Trey Lance, or I, if you want to uh, pay attention to Chris Sims, which I do, draft Matt Jones, you can understand why the 49ers had to make that move. Number one, in the NFC West division, they're going to be playing, as of right now, Russell Wilson, still in Seattle, as of right now. Kyler Murray emerging with Arizona. The Rams have Matthew Stafford. So if the 49ers, who are built to win right now, their defense and running game might not be as good as it was when they were contending for the Super Bowl, but it's still a situation where that those uh, strengths are going to be in place, and especially when you have Cal Shanahan, the offensive and, and head coach, uh, calling the place. You know, you're going to need yourself a quarterback long-term. And I don't think Garoppolo is long-term. He's got two years remaining on his contract. The 49ers can save $23.5 million in salary cap space just by trading him. They're mentioning that they're not trading him. Okay, we'll see how that goes. But Garoppolo is also owed $53.4 million over the final two years of his deal. When you think about it, and when you think about what he is, and you think about the contract now that quarterbacks are starting to get, while at the time where he signed with the 49ers that uh, contract, you were thinking you were under the gaze that this was going to be a quarterback that was being paid like a franchise quarterback. Now we see just a couple of years later that Garoppolo and the money that he's being paid, um, you know, I can see that. It's not like an incredible over, you know, overpay or anything like that. If you're speaking about Garoppolo, who I think is a anywhere between when everything is all said and done from week one to week 17, somewhere anywhere between a number 13 and number 17 best quarterback in the NFL, the, what, what he's being paid, I think that's, I think that's good. I think that's average. Could it be a little bit less? Yeah, but not the, the, the pay isn't so outrageous. And as I mentioned before, if they cut them, they can save themselves some decent cap space moving forward. So, I, I understand what the 49ers are saying where they say they're not going to trade him, but um, we'll see moving forward. And as I mentioned before, if they draft Trey Lance, they're going to keep him. Even if they draft Justin Fields from from Ohio State, Garoppolo could be the short-term bridge for Fields to play early next season. We, we've seen it before with franchise quarterback. We've seen it before with uh, starting quarterbacks. They might not start opening day. Baker Mayfield didn't start opening day. Justin Herbert didn't start the opening day. So there have been a lot of guys who were drafted in the first round, high first round picks, who weren't starting quarterbacks on opening day. But very quickly that uh, changed and they became the quarterback. So if the 49ers are going to draft Justin Fields, my guess would be that, yeah, you keep Garoppolo around. And basically by week five or week six, depending upon what the team is doing, then you start making that decision to play Justin Fields. Again, it depends on the record, depends on what's going down in the conference and and all those things. There's many other uh, um, discussions that need to be had. There's many other scenarios that need to happen. But uh, as of right now, before any of the games are played, before any of the off-season workouts can happen, before training camps is months, months away, you know, that would be my guess as far as the plan for the 49ers with the quarterback using the number three pick. If they go ahead and they draft the number three, Matt Jones. Good Lord. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know exactly what. That would be interesting. That would really be interesting. 
more plausible than the 49 You know, I think about this. And I'm thinking about this. Uh, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. I'm thinking about this. You know, and this has nothing to do with all of his legal troubles right now. But if you think about it, the 49ers were one of the teams that were mentioned when speaking about where Deshaun Watson can go. I think the position that they move themselves in now, again, I'm putting everything with Deshaun Watson off the field away. I think this is a much better avenue for the 49ers to go down. Because, look, if you're going to have to give up, and I, and I said this before about what will it take for a team to go ahead and acquire the services of Deshaun Watson. We spoke about, or I spoke about the New York Jets, basically giving up all of their draft capital for the next couple of years. So if you're going to have to trade half your team, if you're going to have to trade half of your uh, your good players, or your great players, or your influence players, or your impact players to get Deshaun Watson, he's just going to be going to another Houston situation in terms of the lack of talent. If you're going to trade all of your talent, all of your viable talent for a quarterback, he's going to be going, going, going to a team with no talent. So the New York Jets can say, hip, hip, hooray, yay, 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 zigga, zigga, say, we got ourselves to Sean Watson. But if he's going to a New York Jets franchise, which is dysfunctional to begin with, with no talent, at least for the 2021-2022 season, what are going to be the expectations for the New York Jets? What are going to be the expectations for Deshaun Watson to lead them to any type of meaningful season with no one around them? Again, he's going to be playing like the New York Jets are going to be the Houston Texans of the Northeast. So you have a lot of talented defenders on the San Francisco 49er ball club. You have a lot of draft capital moving forward with the San Francisco 49ers for them to get themselves to Deshaun Watson. And, you know, at first you think, yeah, let's go ahead and just take the surface and say, man, how awesome would it be to have Kyle Shanahan be able to work with Deshaun Watson for the next 10 years? It could be the new generation's Sean Payton, um, Sean Payton, uh, Drew Brees combination there, if something like that would happen. And then you can also add in the argument, yeah, the the things or the, the, the capital that the 49ers would have to give to the Houston Texans to get Watson in the beginning, yeah, it would be kind of bleak in terms of what they're trying to do to win championships and that type of thing and be one of the teams uh, that franchises that will be elite. Yeah, in the short term, because to get this top three, top four dynamic quarterback at Deshaun Watson, who's still 25 years of age, short term, it might hurt. Short term, it might stink. But if you can go ahead and make some moves and do the grooves and try to improve, by the time that Deshaun Watson is really hitting his stride in 2025, 2026, 2027, where still we see see football players, and not just Tom Brady, we still see football players still being elite at the age of 35, at the age of 37, at the age of 39. So Deshaun Watson, who's only, what, 30, 25 years old, if he's still going to be playing lights out football, if he's still going to be at a Russell Wilson level, if he's still going to be at an Aaron Rodgers level in terms of that type of quarterback in the league, which is to say an MVP, if he's still going to be at that level after 12 years from now, if you're the 49ers, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll sacrifice the 2021, 22, and half of the 23 season to get Deshaun Watson because I know by the time, and John Lynch is thinking, I know by the time I get the opportunity to rebuild this team and put it back together again, the pieces surrounding Deshaun Watson, I can get the San Francisco 49ers back into contention 
to win the championship. But with all of those things being said, I would still say, you know what? That's great, but I think in terms of long-term, I would still go with the route that the San Francisco 49ers are going. No, we're not going to give away a bunch of players. No, we're not going to give away a bunch of uh, draft picks for Deshaun Watson. We're not going to overhaul our franchise to get Deshaun Watson. We're going to do it this way. And again, if they go ahead and draft Trey Lance, if, if anybody, if any coach in the NFL can get the most out of a player that can tap the potential of any player. You don't think it's Cal Shanahan? So if we're speaking about a guy in Trey Lance who are the scouts and everybody say that this kid has a chance to be special, he just needs the right coaching, he just needs the right system, he just needs the right preparation, you don't think that Cal Shanahan is one of the leading contenders to be able to do that? So, yeah, I mean, there's some situations, there's some organizations that I think need to look into the, yeah, okay, that's great, Trey Lance, he could, he might be, he has the potential to, he could be this guy, he could be that guy. Are we an organization to tap into that potential? Now, every team, every franchise, every owner is going to say yes. And if the owner doesn't think so, then he's going to get on the horn and call his GM and say, why don't we have a coach who can tap into what Trey Lance uh, can give us potentially. But as we know, as you know, as your husband knows, as your wife knows, as your kids know, as your bosses know, as your homeboys know, there's some franchises out there that know. You, you, you don't send them over. You don't put them in that program. You don't put them in that organization if you're looking to quote-unquote untap his potential. The New York Jets come to mind. Zach Wilson. Who is Zach Wilson? Well, number one, at least the Jets did the right thing and got rid of Adam Gaze. But for a guy like for a guy like Zach Wilson out of BYU, who's supposed to be the second coming of Patrick Mahomes, or he has Patrick Mahomes type qualities. Remember that? Remember he said that? Patrick Mahomes type. I'm not saying he is Patrick Mahomes, but some of the throws I see are Patrick Mahomes esque. Okay. But New York Jets fans, come on, man. Be honest with me. Keep it 100. Do you really do you really have faith that the Jets organizations can untap the potential of a Zach Wilson more than a San Francisco 49er organization, more than a New Orleans Saints organization? I wouldn't. And Robert Slala, he might be a great coach, but he's more of the defensive end. I, I would be feeling kind of good with the Jets with their new coach if they drafted themselves uh, the, the next Reggie White or the next potential to be an all-time great. If the Jets were, if the Jets had the opportunity to draft Chase Young or Chase Young was on the ball club for the Jets with the new coach they had coming in, yeah, I could see him saying, damn, man, he, he, Tra- Chase Young is about to be taken off. He's about to be, he's about to be that dominant NFL pass rusher because of the credentials that Robert Slayla had brought from the San Francisco 49ers as a defensive coordinator, as a teacher of defense. He ain't teaching no uh, quarterbacks. I don't know who he's going to hire. I don't know who his offensive coordinator is going to be. I don't know what the offensive coordinator or quarterback coach reputation is. But Eric Bieniemy, the next job he takes is not going to be an offensive coordinator. It's going to be a head coach. 
So, you know, there's very few quarterback gurus out there in terms of being able to uh, untap the potential for a quarterback with amazing potential. Eric Bieniemy is one. See what he did with Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Shanahan, Kyle Shanahan is another. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see we don't need Deshaun Watson. I could take a Trey Lance and in about three or four years have him just as good as Deshaun Watson. I'm Kyle Shanahan. I can get it done. I I put a system around Jimmy Garoppolo and got him to a Super Bowl. You don't think I can do the same with Trey Lance in about three years? Hello. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So with this entire trade, the teams that went down, the San Francisco 49ers moving to number three, the Miami Dolphins moving down to number six and then moving around and up and down and getting around like a sex machine with James Brown and their their um, relationship, their short-term relationship that they had as far as the trading situation with the Philadelphia Eagles finally settling, speaking of the Dolphins, with the number six pick in the draft. I guess right now this means that, you know what? Tua Tungabailoa, that's their starting quarterback for right now. Remember what the NFL stands for, not for long. So, as of right now, the Dolphins organization and coaching staff, they're putting their faith into a guy that they coveted for years. Tanking for Tua, remember all that? They were dancing in the streets and they were dancing up and down the, dancing up and down the boulevard when they had the opportunity to finally draft Tua Tungabailoa. They thought that for them to be in that position, they would have to have the number one pick, but they got him at number five. So, hey, wish granted. He had a good season and a bad season. He, had a, he was a rookie, for heaven's sakes alive. Again, came in to replace Fitzpatrick. And he had some good moments. He had some bad moments. He was horrific in a game they needed to have to make the playoffs against Buffalo through three interceptions and such. Had some games where he couldn't finish because uh, Brian Flores decided to go with uh, Fitzpatrick to close out the game, to win the game. Many people were comparing it to a baseball situation, a starting pitching closing type of uh, situation where Tunga Vailoa was the starting pitcher and then Fitzpatrick was the closer. Don't know if saves count in football. I don't know how much Fitzpatrick on the open market could take that and and, and somehow get a few extra bucks from that, but uh, it is what it is. So Tunga Vailoa, here he is, rookie season, finished with uh, 64% completion rate. Threw for almost 2,000 yards, 1,814, 11 touchdowns, 5 interceptions. Had a QBR rating of 87. Had, had some games where, you know what, his impact was felt. Maybe some traits that need to be worked out of him. Um, used his legs, used his physicality uh, a little bit much. One of those games where, you know, he had a, a couple of short rushing touchdown passes, but only threw for 94 yards because... The special teams did some work. The defense did some work. That's nice. There are some games where he was nothing more than trying to be game management. But again, he's a rookie. We're not expecting that from Tunga Vailoa moving forward. And with the lack of weapons that he had at the wide receiver and tight end position, you weren't really expecting Tunga Vailoa to go out there and pass it all around the yard. So with the move that the Dolphins made, getting to number six, now all of a sudden they can go ahead and draft the Beth White receiver, Jamar Chase from LSU, who didn't play last season, Devonta Smith from Alabama. Those two guys should be available. I'm I'm not a draft. I'm not a draft guy. I'm not a scout. 
I don't uh, know too much in terms of the nuances and how to teach um, wide receivers how to do their craft. That's not me. I've, I've never taught a wide receiver how to run routes and how to run a route and the nuances and the fundamentals. So who am I to uh, question what uh, guys who have been making a living for sometimes decades looking at wide receivers, who am I to sit there and say, no, let me tell you how it's really done. But to me, for those who are sitting there talking about Devonta Smith, Devonta Smith, Devonta Smith, can you, are you sure that he can make the transition and be an impact player in the pros? The guy weighs 170 pounds. 170 pounds. There's no way he can play the slot, right? There's no way you send that guy over the middle, right? At 170 pounds? Isn't that basically suicide for a guy that, that small? That thin? So, to me, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I think Jamar Chase, now he hasn't had a year to play football, so he's been off for a year, but he's a bigger guy, more physical guy. I would think a more versatile guy. Devonta Smith, at 170 pounds, he's a great route runner. Great technicians, that's what they say. He doesn't have blazing speed. He's not uh, He's not the Waddle, the other quarterback. He's not Henry Ruggs III. Um, he's not one of those type of athletic gems as far as the speed department is concerned out of the recent wide receiving group that came out of Alabama. But he's an excellent route runner, great hands, competitor, producer. Well, that's nice, but that was in college. Now, I still think the fundamental skills of being able to run around and all those type of things are going to be there. And you don't have to have superstar, unbelievable Randy Moss-type speed to be a great wide receiver if you have a great technique, if you have great fundamentals, if you have great hands, if you are a competitor, if you're all of those things, if you're just a, a winner, a good, strong personality in those regards. But still, I'm looking at, for my situation, Jamar Chase, and also... There has to be some type of uh, symmetry between the quarterback and the wide receiver. If we're taking a look at a quarterback like Tua Tungvaloa, who had the opportunity to play with Devonta Smith, I'm, I'm looking at that, and I'm also looking at, okay, what type of quarterback, what type of thrower are we getting with Tua Tungvaloa? You know, it makes a big deal in terms of a quarterback who's left-handed or right-handed. A big deal, are we dealing with a quarterback if he makes pinpoint passes? then maybe we can kind of uh, negate the negative that Devonta Smith is 170 pounds. Because if he's running great routes, he's going to get the ball right here in the chest uh, the majority of the time. Well, then, you know, we don't need to have a guy who's going to be 6'2", 6'3", 210 pounds, who's going to be jumping left, jumping right, jumping up, and doing all those type of things. Because the quarterback, instead of pulling the ball right where it needs to be between the numbers, is going to sometimes maybe uh, throw up errant pass or throw a pass that a wide receiver is going to have to adjust to. So if we're going to have that situation with Tunga Bailoa, well, then maybe we do go with Jamar Chase. How good is his hands? How good is he catching the difficult passes? Also, again, we're speaking about what franchise is he going to? I think a lot of times, if you're speaking about a Devonta Smith or Jamar Chase, these guys who have played in the SEC, well, that's fine. That's great. But take a look at some of the um, weather locale that they play in. They're playing in Alabama. They're playing in, against teams in Mississippi against teams in Florida, against teams in Georgia, against teams in Tennessee. So when they're playing football, a lot of times they're, they're not playing in 25-degree weather. They're not playing in snowy conditions. They're not playing in inclement weather. 
And it's these guys are also from that region of the country. What was the last time they played multiple games in cold weather where they had to use gloves or they had to use warmers or they had to be on a field that was a little bit slippery or a little bit icy because of the weather conditions? I think those things also play a role, especially if you're speaking about drafting uh, at a position where you have two players who could go either way. Now, we're, we're speaking about Miami, so it's like, okay, you're going to be spending eight games in perfect weather for the most part, not unless it rains for like 30 minutes and then, you know, five minutes later it's all hot and sunny. But, um, you know, you're also going to have to be thinking about, okay, we're going to have to uh, go to Buffalo. Okay, we're going to have to go to New England. Okay, if we're going to advance in the playoffs, and we might not have a home field advantage, we're going to have to play in Baltimore in January. We're going to have to play in Buffalo in January. We're going to have to play in Cleveland in January. We're going to have to play in Kansas City in January. I mean, how much of that plays into the decision that the Miami Dolphins are going to have if they're going to be drafting someone like a Jamar Chase or someone like a Devonta Smith? Or someone like a, a Jarrett Waddle. Who knows? Who knows? Those are those are questions and those are situations for people who have a lot more knowledge and are much higher on the pay scale for making those decisions than I do. But it was a good move for the Miami Dolphins, nonetheless, to accumulate picks, work on the offensive line, work on the wide receiver position, work on the tight end position, and start building some go-to receivers and some go-to weapons for Tua Tungabailoa to make sure that this investment that you made in him, as far as him being the quarterback of the future and that quarterback who could possibly win you championships, make sure that you do everything to quote-unquote untap that potential. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. NFL free agency moving forward very quickly. Uh, talked about the New England Patriots. Talked about my Washington Snyder skins. The most exciting part of the free agent period is over. Uh, the big name signings and everything has already been taken care of. The teams doing what they need to do have already been taken care of. Tampa Bay did what it needed to do. When you're speaking about some of the elite teams and what they did to remain at that stature, the Buccaneers, as I mentioned before, the Tampa Tom Buccaneers, I hope I mentioned it before, did what they needed to do to be one of the league's elite. They basically resigned almost all of the players from last season. And all of their important ones, they put the franchise tag on Chris Godwin. They just now recently re-signed for a year Leonard Fournette. They re-signed Ndamukong Sue, Rob Gronkowski, Shaq Barrett, Levante David. All are going to be back for next season. Tom Brady restructured his deal for it to make it to, for that to happen. So there we go. Now, now people might talk about, hey, look, you know, um, we can go either way with this. The yin and the yang in terms of, well, you know, they re-signed everybody. Clearly, those Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be the favorites to win the NFC and make it to uh, the Super Bowl to go back-to-back. How much of what happened last season with the Buccaneers, how much of that was, A, those guys stayed relatively healthy, B, I'll say it before and I'll say it again. I said it the moment that Tom Brady decided to go ahead and uh, sign and play with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think the best that we'll see out of Tom Brady is going to be this season or this past season. You don't 
I mean, you can sit there and talk about, well, you know, now he's going to have an offseason. Now he's going to have a true offseason and training camp. And he knows these guys and he knows what works. and He knows what he doesn't work and the communication and the relationship and the partnership with uh, Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator, and Bruce Arians is going to be even stronger. They're going to be able to expand the playbook. So Brady's going to be even more comfortable. He's going to have more knowledge. And you know Brady's going to be dedicated. You know Brady is already out there in the offseason doing the do and getting ready. All of those things are true. And all of those things are valid. And all of those points to point to the Buccaneers even being better, at least on offense, than they were last season are valid. My point is once again, Tom Brady is going to be 44 years old. And for a 43-year-old man playing football, Tom, Tom Brady was tremendous. Tom Brady was great. Tom Brady did what he needed to do. Tom Brady was more than just what Peyton Manning was his last year in Denver, where he rode the coattails of a strong defense to uh, win a Super Bowl in his last season playing in the NFL. All of those things are true. All of those things are valid. All of those things I'm not going to argue with. But again, Tom Brady is going to be 44 fucking years old. And the older that you get, I don't care how many green smoothies that you drink. I don't care how many TB12s that you have. I don't care how magnificent and magical and awesome Alex Guerrero is, which I'm quite sure he is. And I'm quite sure the TB12 uh, workout and way of life, I'm quite sure all of those things is, is awesome. Fantastic. My lazy, fat, pathetic ass maybe needs to uh, try some of that shit so I can lose some fat off this fat ass gut that I have. All of those things are true. But as you know, as I know, as the generation after me knows, the generation right now, my generation knows, as we're reaching our, well, some of us are already in our early 50s, some of us who are in our 40s, we, we don't get better. You know, I don't care what we do. We're not getting stronger. We're not getting faster. Physically, we don't de-age. There's nothing about de-aging. Period. So 44 is going to be 44. And Tom Brady's going to be 44. Now, maybe at 44, Tom Brady can still do his thing. But for Tom Brady, in my opinion, to have the type of run that he had last season going to the Super Bowl and winning that championship, a lot of things have to go right again, which I don't think they can. Not to say that the Buccaneers are going to finish 7-9. and nine. Not to say that the Buccaneers are going to uh, miss the playoffs or anything like that. But there's a lot of things, there's a lot of scenarios that normally happen during the NFL season that didn't happen to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that normally don't happen two years in a row. And when you're dealing with a 44-year-old quarterback who, I'm sorry, for me, Tom Brady next year, when everything is all said and done, week one through week 17, best case scenario for Brady, top nine, number nine, number eight quarterback in the league. Biggest fear, somewhere around 13 or 14. Again, it all depends. The line played awesome for the Buccaneers during that run toward the Super Bowl. Gronkowski finally shook off the rust and became a huge factor for Brady, especially when Mike Evans was injured and he wasn't 100%. You had Antonio Brown making plays. The running game picked up. All of a sudden, the offense for uh, Tampa Bay found their rhythm, found their balance. When Tom Brady had to be Patrick Mahomes in terms of passing the football every other down, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers lost. You go back and look up the losses. Go back and look up the times they were blown out. 
It was Tom Brady throwing the ball all over the yard. That's not how Tampa Bay is going to win football games. They're going to need Ronald Jones. They're going to need Leonard Fournette. They're going to need a balanced attack and a strong defense to continue what they did at the end of last season. Are they going to be able to do that? Is the offensive line going to be able to stay intact? Is Shaq Barrett still going to have the season that he had? Luckily for the Buccaneers, because of the color of their skin, that um, the offensive and defensive coordinators are still going to be there. Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, and Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator, who put in Hall of Fame-type game plans for the Super Bowl, which allowed Tom Brady not to be the guy that needed to be throwing the ball all over the yard because of their defense, because of the defensive line's destruction of Kansas City's offensive line, because of the running game, the play-action passes, setting up Brady's touchdown passes to Kronkowski and such. Brady was part of a machine that day. Going down the stretch of the season, he was part of a machine. He wasn't a one-hit guy, or he wasn't a, I'm going to put this team on my shoulders and lead them to a Super Bowl type of deal. Tom Brady, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. Tom Brady at 43 wasn't that type of quarterback. What makes you think at 44 he's going to be able to do that? Tom Brady at 43 with everything around him going swimmingly well, astoundingly well, was not a guy where I'm going to put a franchise, I'm going to put an offense on my 43-year-old shoulders and lead them to the championship. A couple of games, they tried that. The Sunday night game against New Orleans didn't work. Thursday night game against the Chicago Bears didn't work. When Brady had to throw 40 to 45 times and he only ran the ball 10 to 12 times, didn't work. Offense didn't look good. They, they weren't losing games 52 to 48 either when he was doing that. They were getting blown out. The offense was looking inept. And Tom Brady was looking old. So now I don't give a damn about the offseason and I don't give a damn about training camp. Yeah, the offense could be humming a lot uh, more consistently, but it's going to be based on a balanced offense. It's not that, oh, now we have an offseason, now we have training camps, now we have OTAs, now we have Tom understanding the playbook, now we can go back to having Tom Brady throw the ball 42 to 48, 50 times a game now, and we can just kind of eschew or ignore the running game. Not happening. You can do that. Tom Brady isn't going to last 16 games. You guys won't make the playoffs if you want to go ahead and do that. Again, I don't give a damn how many OTAs you have. I don't give a damn how many training camps you have. I don't give a damn how many preseason games you get to play. Some of the advantages that you'll have for this upcoming season that you didn't have this past season. Tom Brady ain't that Tom Brady anymore. He's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Deshaun Watson. He's not Josh Allen. He's not Dak Prescott. He's not one of those type of quarterbacks to put the offense on me. Let's go. He needs that running game. He needs that defense. It's going to be interesting to see if those things are still going to be intact for the entire season and do as well as they did, uh, especially at the end of the season for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Kansas City football team, they addressed their major weakness in free agency. They still have a lot to improve on that offensive line. They let go of starting offensive tackles, uh, Eric Fisher, Mitchell Schwartz, but they did sign the best offensive lineman available when they got former Patriots Joe Thune. Then they also signed Kyle Long, Howie Long's kid, who was retired. I, 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 let, me, let me backtrack. Kyle Long is not a kid. He's a man. So they signed uh, Kyle Long, son of um, son of um, Howie Long. 
And they re-signed Mike Remmers, who started a garden tackle for KC last season. Interesting. They're going to have to do some stuff in the draft. Luckily for Kansas City, that uh, they have a multitude of draft picks that they can use to um, go ahead and replenish, restock, improve their offensive line. I think they're going to have to go ahead and do something about a another wide receiver. Sammy Watkins is no longer on the team. I forgot. He just signed recently with a team. I forgot. But they're going to need a number two receiver to uh, complement Tyreek Hill. I would say more of a possession receiver since Hill has the blazing speed to stretch the defenses. A slot receiver, a number two receiver would be good for the uh, football team from Kansas City. Um, um, Tight end set, running back set, could improve. From the defensive line also, they really didn't address that in free agency. I don't know how much money they had to spend concerning that, especially when you sign Thune to a big uh, big contract to play on that offensive line for Kansas City. So I think in this upcoming NFL draft that the Patriots are going to, excuse me, that the Kansas City football team are going to be using their draft capital to improve the offensive line, get themselves a pass rusher, could use an upgrade at the linebacker position, but also get themselves another wide receiver or two. When you have Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback, you can you can uh, fumigate a lot of the the the, the nauseous gas, gases very well from your perfume type play. I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. Basically, what I'm saying is is that the play of Patrick Mahomes, you don't need to have all stars at every position. With Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback and already with Tyreek Hill and um and oh my goodness gracious I just said George Kittle I have a thing of George Kittle Travis Kelsey thank you as long as you have Travis Kelsey and and um uh at the at the tight end position and you have Tyreek Hill at the wide receiver position you don't need to have Alvin Harper opposite Michael Irvin with the Dallas Cowboys back in the 1990 at your number two wide receiver you can get yourself a solid to good uh, wide receiver and with Mahomes, he can he can make that work. So I think that the main thing is to make sure you keep that offense humming. Very rare, extremely rare that you have both sides being uh, dominant or both sides being very good in the National Football League because of the hard salary cap. You're going to have to uh, kind of tilt one way or the other. Are we going offense or are we going defense in terms of what the strong suit? of our team is and while many people will point to you need an offense because of the way the game is played today uh just take a look at the super bowl take a look at what the san francisco 49ers did a couple of seasons ago and know that yes you can win a super bowl with the defensive uh part of your team being the dominant force and having a strong running game you don't need to have a Mahomes. you don't need to have a deshaun you don't need to have a a rod you an A.A. run, you don't need to have any of those guys as far as the quarterback. It would be nice. It would be great. It would be wonderful. It would be awesome. Mike Greenberg of the Mike Greenberg Show on his morning show is always talking about, yeah, you know, there's two types of NFL teams, one with a franchise quarterback, one without a franchise quarterback. Well, what are we doing here as far as determining what is a franchise quarterback? Was Tom Brady a franchise quarterback last season? Now, many people are going to I was going to be bugging out like a stomped on toad frog and go, yes, but depends on what your definition is. Tom Brady last year, in my opinion, was somewhere between a number seven and number nine quarterback in the league in terms of, of um, you know, ranking the quarterbacks. Shows that if you have a strong running game, 
shows that you have a balanced offense, shows that you have a great defense, shows that you have great coaching. You can overcome having a soon-to-be legendary quarterback still doing a thing in the Super Bowl. You can have a Jimmy Garoppolo and still be in a position to win a Super Bowl if you have a strong defense and a very good running game to complement a franchise that might not have themselves a quote-unquote franchise quarterback. So so it's, it's going to be an interesting season. It's always going to be an interesting season in the NFL, especially now since they got that, what, $100 billion, 10-year, $100 billion 10-year contract extension. Woo-woo! Boy, it must be nice to have a, nice to have a football team, huh? If you're the owner of a football team, money, 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 money. So the free agency period of the NFL that's winding down, we'll get ready with some draft talk as the NFL draft appears. Again, you know, I mean, uh, Zach Wilson, you know, the throws that he made and this, that, and the other, whoop-de-doo, whoop-de-damn-doo. That's great. He did it with no pads, no helmet, no pass rush uh, in a controlled environment uh, situation. So, I mean, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm quite sure there's value to that, but I I just don't, I you know, I don't, I don't really, I don't really pay too much attention to that. But, uh, yeah, the NFL offseason season. In full swing, and it's going to keep us swinging. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down. A lot of things being discussed today in the world of sports, which I am discussing here on a awesome mid-morning out here in Northwest Las Vegas, watching a little bit of the uh, preview of the NAACP Awards. Why is it that, uh, you know, one thing that I'm just not really into are like TV shows and movies and such. I'm more into documentaries. I'm more into like real life stuff. I'm not into uh, realistic shows. There I'll watch one second of the Kardashians. I'm not saying it makes me better than anybody else. I'm just saying for my type of uh, taste in terms of television viewing, not really down with the uh, Kardashians type of uh, nonsense. Really not into the love and hip hop folks where basically it's just a menstrual shows to uh, show us, uh, show folks how ignorant my community can be with some of them skanks, the way they act. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, it's just embarrassing. It's just ridiculous. It's just almost in a way exploitative. The fact that they have nothing to really balance, really balance those uh, clowns the way they act. I mean, it would be better, it would be nice with the Love and Hip Hops and the uh, the Ink Show and the Black Ink or whatever the shit that they show on uh, VH1. It'd be nice if they had a show showing uh, black folks who are professionals, working hard, 
strong relationships, good relationships, nice communities, doing well, speaking English, uh, you know, pillars of the community, all of those type of things. Even if they were being shown in black communities doing those shows, doing those things and showing the numerous black communities out there where it's not about gun violence, it's not about drugs, it's not about people hanging on the streets, it's not about gun stores and liquor stores. That Yet there are communities in, here in America, all across America, that you know what? In terms of the way they look, they look a lot like a white folks community in terms of black folks. Middle of, middle of America, middle class, hardworking, good people, educated people. I know you ain't going to find that on Fox News. I know you ain't going to find that anywhere else. But yet there are absolutely uh, neighborhoods out there that exist. The one that I live in, for instance, uh, very diverse. A lot of black folks here and none of them are hanging out on the street corner. None of them are selling drugs. None of them are getting shot. Their kids all go to a pretty good school, nice neighborhoods, nice lawns, all of those type of things. So it's, it's, it would be nice if you're going to show the coons, if you're going to show the, the, the fools, if you're going to show the minstrel shows, if you're going to show the uh, step and fetching, if you're going to show those jackasses, if you want to show them skanks, if you want to show them whores, if you want to show those uh, disgraces to the uh, community, those embarrassments to the community, which is on love and hip hop and basketball wives and all of those skanks. It would be nice if we could kind of balance it out to let those who maybe might not know anything about our culture, not, might not know anything about our community, that yes, there is an opposite side. You want to show that bullshit, at least show what really is reflective of our community and not that bullshit that they show on VH1 or uh, or anything like that. But I, right, I digress. But, you know, I'm watching again the NAACP showing a preview of that and they're showing uh, some of the awards for best drama. And as I mentioned before, I couldn't tell you what's on. I couldn't tell you what's on television in terms of prime time. If you ask me what's on on a Sunday, on a, on a on a Tuesday night on NBC, CBS, or ABC or Fox, I have no idea. I couldn't name you a sitcom. I couldn't name you who the best sitcom actor or actress is out there. I don't know what sitcom is doing well. I don't know what TV drama is doing well. I have no idea. The last thing I heard was Modern Family. Family went off the air, year, air years ago, so it was like that was the only sitcom that I paid attention to. So after that, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Is Blackish still on? I don't know. If uh, is uh, Oh, I don't even know the names. I know the face, but I can't even remember the name. Um, I don't know. But uh, the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because one of the reasons why I have no time for, for television shows, especially dramas, is the way these people act. It's like, wh- <laughs> who, who, who talks like this in real life? Who has these type of conversations? You know, when they do the uh, dramatic scenes and all those type of stuff, when they need to get emotional and fiery and strong presence and all this kind of stuff. Who, who acts like this for real? Like on the cop shows, um, like the Ice Tea, the, the, the show that he's on, and the rest of these uh, uh, um, TV shows. What detectives, what police officers act like those fucking jackasses in which I watched the first 48 on A&E and I watched the detective shows. What exactly does the, uh, where, 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 where exactly do these, I've, I've never seen these detectives that they have on the NBC shows and the CBS and the ABC shows. I've never seen those type of cops. Number one, I've never seen females who look that good and who are that young be real detectives. I mean, what skinny, pale, white, 
27-year-old female who's a detective that they show on these uh, programs, I don't see those on the first 48. I don't see them on the real uh, shows dealing with that stuff. So I'm like, where, where, where are they coming from? And when you get these ass clowns, when they make these uh, you know dramatic speeches, it's like, who, who talks like that? I mean, if you're breaking up with somebody, if you're in a long-term relationship and you break up with somebody, who speaks like they do on these television shows? I gave you 15 years, and all you did was treat it like garbage. Now you want me to go ahead and say that I love you? You must be out your mind. Who, who, who talks like that? If, if you were in a relationship, or if you were dealing with somebody, and that's the way they talk, I forgot the one show they kept showing on CBS, I guess it's like a Chicago Hope, like the fire the fireman show or the police show or the uh, emergency room show where it's like every single scene is like some dramatic tear jerking strings playing type of moment. It is like who in life goes through that type of shit? How many, how many for folks my age, how many of those speeches have you given in your life? Where have you done that? Whether it be your children, whether it be your, your spouse, how many times have you given a speech like that? I don't know what's going on. But all I know is you're smart. And you can get it done. And as God is my witness, I'm going to make sure that you get it done. So you march your black ass back to school and you hit them books. And I want you to know that your mom and dad love you very, very much. I mean, wh- huh? what? What? Huh? <laughs> Wendell, this is not working out. All I know is that I loved you once. I loved you very, very much. But now it's over. And I'm so sick and tired of not being respected by you. All I know is I want out of this relationship. And I want out of it right now. What? So what you're saying, bitch, is that you're leaving? All right, there's the front door. (laughs) Then I got to reciprocate with some type of, No! No! That can't be true! Don't you know you mean everything to me? When I wake up in the morning and I see that beautiful, beautiful creature sitting next to me, which is you, I thank God that I'm alive enough to know that my love for you will permeate everything. And it'll be there. I mean, what am I trying to do? Dr. Martin Luther King or some nonsense like that? So these... These drama shows just fucking crack me up. Give, give me a sporting event. Give me a real, give me the real, the real in terms of a uh, real, you know, we talk about, you know, reality television. Watch a sporting event. That's reality television right there. That's some good shit. I'll watch a pretty good movie if you got Denzel, if you got uh, Tom Hanks. Michael Douglas is not doing movies anymore, but, you know, when Michael Douglas was doing his thing, Morgan Freeman you know, Eddie Murphy and those type of things. Give me a little entertainment for that situation. Yeah, I'll go watch a movie. And like I said, I'm down with documentaries. I love me some documentaries. So I could sit there and I could documentary binge days and days and days. But just in terms of uh, television shows and most uh, movies, I'm out. I'm good. Moving on to something else. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I'm so glad that you could be with but there's a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, like the latest news concerning Deshaun Watson. 
The latest news concerning Deshaun Watson, I want to get to that. 16 separate lawsuits have been filed by massage therapists from three different states with some sort of allegations concerning some type of sexual misconduct that could be proved that could uh, prove to be criminal in the court of law. Again, I mentioned this before when speaking about this. I, I'm not going one way or the other. I'm not accusing. I'm not saying he's guilty. I'm not saying he's innocent. I'm not saying these women are gold diggers. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. And I know, as I mentioned before, in the world that we live in, that we want some type of conclusion to this story by yesterday. But it's going to take some time. And we have to take these allegations seriously. And that's all they are. They're allegations. I know the I know the persona that Deshaun Watson shows us, but we, we don't know Deshaun Watson. We have no idea what Deshaun Watson is all about. I have been led to believe that Deshaun Watson is an outstanding young man, pillar of the community, God-fearing guy, wonderful guy, guy that you would like to bring home to your daughter and have her, and have her marry him, not just because he's a quarterback that's making a, gajil- a gajillion dollars, but he's a good, strong, Nubian brother. That was my thoughts and feelings, the way that Deshaun Watson has been presented to me. But Deshaun Watson, obviously, we haven't got the entire picture of who he is as a human being. And my thoughts and feelings about him might be true. And all of this could be, you know, nonsense. And all of this could be, I don't know what it is. But, but what I'm saying is, is that before I start going to the next phase in terms of oh my goodness gracious, I can't believe this, and how did Deshaun Watson do this, and this, that, and the other. Or I go the other way and start saying, oh, yeah, there you go. When you're an athlete, you have to be uh, aware of all of these skanks who are coming out and they're trying to get your money and they're gold diggers and they're no good and women's movement taking the big hit and blah, 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 blah. Me Too's a joke and all of this kind of stuff, put them in the same category as BLM. Before I start going either way or somewhere in that same vicinity to talk about that type of stuff, you know, we're going to have to... um, let it play out, but damn, man, damn, 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 it would be easier for us to maybe make a more conclusive statement or maybe to be resolute in our thoughts and feelings one way or the other if this was coming from one female. This is coming from 16. 16 separate lawsuits. These females don't know each other. They're from three different states. And the modus operandi, which they're uh, saying or alleging in the lawsuits, are all fitting the same pattern. And we have to realize that criminals normally don't change their modus operandi, no matter what it is. Whether it's sexual assault, whether it's burglary, whether it's murder, whether it's abuse, whether it's uh, anything like that. For the most part, serial criminals and I'm, I'm not saying that Deshaun Watson is all I'm saying for those who are sitting there saying no doubt about it this is bullshit Deshaun Watson's cool he's clean and this that and the other before we before you want to jump to that and not stay in the middle and not wait to hear some more evidence before you make your decision your conclusion on what you think about Deshaun Watson what you think about these um, females who are alleging these lewd criminalistic behaviors all i know is 16 separate lawsuits coming from three different states from women who don't know each other with the modus operandi being the same 
Now, Ted Bundy had a way of killing people. John Wayne Gacy had a way of killing people. Gary Ridgway had a way of killing people. All fit a modus operandi. He didn't change. John Wayne Gacy didn't just get bored and all of a sudden, all of a sudden start killing young girls. Ted Bundy all of a sudden didn't get bored and start killing old women. Gary Ridgway didn't get bored and start and stop killing prostitutes. Robert Yates didn't find a new way to murder his victims. He shot him in the head point blank rage, picking up prostitutes. He didn't strangle them. He didn't beat them to death. Jeffrey Dahmer didn't change his MO on how he subdued his victims. And that's just all to say that, you know, when I hear these same females, and look, they're being, uh, the, 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 Tony Busby is the attorney for all of these women. So it could be like, you know what, if you're skeptical, about these females, if you're not going to be patient and wait to see exactly what's going on, maybe you can come up with a theory that, you know, Busby got together and said, uh, you know, with these 16 females and say, look, you know, because the case would be stronger, we need to go ahead and have a uniform type of accusation and what Deshaun Watson did. So I'll just go ahead and I'll make up a scenario of what happened, pass it on to you guys and you guys can take it and move forward. That way we'll all be on the same page. That way, you know, we won't have 16 different situations for 16 different women i don't know i don't know so for me you know when i'm starting to calculate whether someone is innocent or guilty or whatever i mean some of the things that are going to come into play when i make my decision is things like i just mentioned before the numerous complaints the modus operandi being the same the fact that these females didn't know each other the fact they're from different states. I don't know if they've gotten in contact with them. I don't even know if Jane Doe number three knows who Jane Doe number 12 is. I, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. So just to give you an example, in a civil lawsuit, I read this in Yahoo Sports. Dan Wetzel wrote a really good uh, article about this if you want to check it out. But I was reading it and basically taking some of the highlights from the article for me to discuss. You know, in a civil lawsuit filed in Harris County, Texas last week on December 28th, 2020, which was days before the Houston Texans season finale, a woman identified in court filings as Jane Doe number three alleged that she met quarterback Deshaun Watson in a Houston office building for the purpose of giving him a massage. All right. Doe number three said that Watson wore just a small towel and kept directing the massage to focus on his quote-unquote inner thighs, inner glutes, and soon enough, even more personal uh, areas. Uh, she said that she felt threatened and intimidated, and she was afraid of what the much bigger Watson could do to her. So it was Watson coerced her to move her mouth toward his private area forcing her to perform oral sex on him. The plaintiff did not consent to any of this conduct. And afterwards, uh, Jane Doe number three said she was confused and terrified. I, I can only imagine, man. I mean, put somebody through some shit like that, if this is true. Ugh. She was left shaking, violated, and ashamed. So she panicked. She defecated on herself. And her mom came and picked her up at the office. Again, I, I don't know if that's true. I have no idea. I, I wasn't there. Her word versus his. So I don't know. I don't know. One's lying and the other one's telling the truth. I don't know. Because Watson has denied this accusation. I don't know. So I'm not going to take what I read just there and say, Oh, Deshaun, you son of a bitch. Or, oh, bitch, how'd you come up with that type of uh, story? I'm not 
going either way with that. Another accusation from a female. This was August 17th, 2020. This is Jane Doe number nine. This is what she said in her civil uh, lawsuit. She said that she met Watson that day at a Houston massage spa where the two of them at the quarterback's insistence were alone in the room. It's, as a woman, it's got to fucking suck to know that that's kind of like, eh, you, you don't do that. You don't, the male and the female, you, mm, 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 mm. But the session was similar to what Jane Doe number three alleges, that it ended with Watson wrapping his Watson wrapping his legs around her head in an attempt to force oral sex. She said she broke free and he went on to masturbate in front of her. Mm. And what this is starting to show from the article is that this is starting to show a pattern of behavior from Watson that uh, that could basically be troubling for him. Because many of the women have alleged similar experiences of Watson exposing himself aggressively directing them to touch inappropriate areas of his body and in some cases touching them with touching them with his genitalia so from Watson and his attorney his attorney is Rusty Harden no relation to James Harden Watson's attorney is talking about he called the accusations made in civil lawsuits meritless and um, to you know show evidence because there was a good thing. It's like, you know, if you have facts, you know, in a, in a situation like this, in a court of law, if you have facts, you pound the facts. If you have evidence, you pound the evidence. If you have nothing, if you have neither facts nor evidence, you pound the table. So making sure that Rusty Harden and Watson's attorneys aren't pounding the table. Um, you know, there's been evidence brought up that... Um, you know, these allegations made by these women are fruitless. In fact, Rusty Harden, as I mentioned before, Deshaun's attorney provided a statement from Watson's business manager stating that Jane Doe number three asked him during a January phone call conversation for $30,000 to keep silent about her encounter, which Jane Doe allegedly said was consensual. Um, okay. All right. I don't know. I, I don't know. Is there any type of evidence? Is there any way that we can get the trans? I don't know. Is there any way that we can get the phone call or get the when this call was made? Or I don't know. I'm not the uh, investigator. I'm not a private investigator. I don't know. I don't know exactly what you can do. But if you're Deshaun Watson, number one, you know you're making a boatload of money, and these accusations are extremely serious. So he made the first move correctly by going out and getting himself Rusty Harden, which is an attorney that you go to if you're a high-profile athlete or a public figure in Houston. I mean, this guy's represented in one favorable verdict. Speaking of Rusty Harden, he's won favorable favorable verdicts for athletes like Rudy Tomjanovich, who I think was the coach. I think was drunk driving with him. The spousal abuse with Warren Moon, Wade Boggs, Rafer Alston, Skip Malou, Scottie Pippen, Stevie Francis. Calvin Murphy, Calvin Murphy, that situation years ago was an absolute mess. His biggest client, though, which got him the most attention as far as athletes are concerned, was when uh, he, when uh, Roger Clemens hired him when he was accused of having perjured himself before Congress over alleged steroid abuse. Remember the old, I mis he misremembered, or he misremembered. Clemens was acquitted on June 18th, 2012, on all charges that the obstruct justice 
and lied to Congress allegations when he denied using performance-enhancing drugs as a Major League Baseball player. Andy Pettit, yeah, I, I think he misremembers. Oh, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. So look, man, if you're you know, if you're Watson, I mean, lucky for him, he's got the money, and I'm I'm the first one to say, man, with the criminal justice system, yeah, it's uh, skewed, and yeah, it's racially biased, and yeah, all of those things. If Deshaun Watson was a guy from the Fifth Ward in Houston, Texas, who was, you know, trying to uh, deal with these matters with a public defender, he's screwed. He's absolutely screwed, especially if these females in Houston, Texas were white, and he's some guy from the Fifth Ward, he's some guy from the lower uh, income area, the ghetto, the black neighborhoods of Houston, Texas. Deshaun Watson, a nobody, unemployed, maybe has a slight criminal history, he'd be screwed. He'd be done. He'd be going up to uh, Huntsville. For I don't know a couple of decades in all in, in, in all probability, but because this is Deshaun Watson, football player, quarterback, multi multi millionaire, from the outside looking in, a really great guy, who plays for the Houston Texans, he's going to have a chance. He's going to have a chance. And I know black folks like to sit up there and talk about the justice system is skewed for black folks. Well, yes and no. It is skewed for black folks, but if you uh, got yourself some money, and you got yourself some fame, and you got themselves, you got yourself some goodwill, and you're in certain positions in that community, i.e., being the quarterback for the professional football team, who's really, really, really good, and you're a good guy, you don't rock the boat, you ain't Kaepernicking nobody, you ain't causing Kaepernick type problems. You're, a, you're, 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 you're what the majority of uh, uh, white folks in that community might say, he, he's a good Negro. He's a good one. I'm not saying that he's a house Negro. Big difference. But, you know, he ain't a rebel rouser. He ain't a, you know, flamethrower. He ain't a, you know, he ain't a public enemy number one. He ain't a Chuck D or favor, Flavor Flav. He ain't one of those guys. He's just a really, really good guy. Does great work in the community. Has a lot of capital. So because of that, the, despite the fact that he is black, because he's all of those things and he's super mega rich, there's a way to get out of this. If he did it, if he did it, if he did it, if he did it, this is going to take a while. And this is, again, this is not something that's going to come to the conclusion uh, next week. This might be something to where a year from now, we still could be talking about this and Deshaun could be saying, you know what, because of the ongoing uh legal process, you know, I'm not allowed to uh, comment on anything regarding this matter. I mean, that could be a situation where March 27th, 2022, it could be this. So I don't know. And I don't know. I, we, we'll, in all actuality, we'll probably never get to the bottom of this. I mean, did we ever get to the bottom of what happened with Kobe and that woman in Colorado? I mean, I know each of us have our thoughts and opinions of what happened. But was there really any concrete evidence of this girl that was, you know, she consented to having sex or did Kobe rape her? I mean, there was no concrete evidence to point either way. Same thing with Desiree Washington and Mike Tyson. Now, Mike Tyson went to prison because this jackass ordered a tax attorney for a lawyer. Shwee. But, uh, you know, some people say that he raped her right here. And some people say that, uh, no, no, Desiree was just a gold digger and this, that, and the other. But there wasn't any concrete evidence either way for us to make a conclusive decision on his guilt or his innocence. 
public opinion stuff. I mean, we pretty know what happened with OJ. <laughs> I mean, I mean, OJ, Ron Goldman, and his ex. I mean, you know, you, you, you gotta, you know, you know, you know, black folks ain't really gonna tell you the truth, but we know, we know, we know. So you know, I mean, it ain't anything like that, you know. But with Deshaun, it could come out to where, um, you know, we might not ever know. And if I'm this guy, if I'm Deshaun Watson, and if I did, not saying that he did. But if he did these things, here's what I am guessing is going to happen. I ain't Rusty Harden. I ain't a lawyer, but I do play one on my podcast. You got to delay, man. You got to delay the legal action. So that's the first thing that we do. We're going to delay, 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 delay. Everything as far as lawsuits. Can we kick this can down the road? And as we're kicking this can down the road, if I'm Rusty Harden, I'm find out first of all i find out who these women are and i don't know how you can do that i don't know i mean again i'm not a lawyer especially of that caliber but i find out who some of these ladies are and i go to them and i say look you've got about six to eight months before the next legal action takes place you can hang on mr busby you can hang on tb tony buzz if you want to but let me tell you something i know who you are and i've got private investigators working for me and what we'll do is we will go ahead and we will tear your private life up. Everything that you did, every kiss that you, every male that you've kissed, every date that you've been on, every sexual encounter that you've had, everything, everything, everything that we can do to smear your name in the court of public opinion while we're waiting for this legal action to take place, this is what we'll do. So you can go ahead and win the battle, ultimately, if you really want to do this, but you'll lose the war. Now, what we can do is we can offer you a half a million dollars after taxes for you to uh, kind of go away, kind of not pursue this, but uh, keep quiet. You'll sign a contract talking about, you know what, you don't have to know, we don't have to know who you are, but you're not going to tell us your story. You're not going to write a book. You ain't going on Ellen. You ain't going on Oprah. Is Oprah even still doing interviews? You ain't going anywhere to tell your story. We're not going to do a made-for-TV movie about it. You're going to take this nice lump sum settlement, and you're going to go back into the ether and go back to what you were doing before. Again, do we even know anything about Kobe Bryant and his accuser? Do we know anything about her? Do we know what she's doing right now? Do we know anything about Desiree Washington right now? Do we know about anything with these kids concerning Michael Jackson in terms of, did you ever know who these kids were? Did you ever know who their names were? The, the, uh, the kids and their parents or whoever who um, alleged that, that Michael Jackson was sleeping with them and doing some about bad things to them? Do we know who these folks are now? I know that they're super stinking rich after Jackson paid them to go away. So they can live their lives. They can go ahead. They don't need to have the scrutiny. They don't need to, you know, go through that bullshit from the sycophant Michael Jackson uh, clowns who uh, worship the ground that he walks on, worship the ground that he moonwalks on, or used to at least. He's no longer with us. So if I'm, um, if I'm Rusty Harden, I mean, 16, 16 accusers, I don't know how you're going to get all 16, but basically it's like, all right, out of the 16 accusers, and this is just me talking ignorant here because I've never gone through all this, so... This is the uh, uh, ignorant side of me talking concerning this. But um, 
if I'm Deshaun Watson, I go to Rusty Harden. It's like, how much is it going to cost for me to uh, have these women shut up and go away? If, if, if he did it. If he did it. If he did it. If he did. If he did it. How much money is this going to cost me for these women to shut up and go away? If I'm an NFL franchise who might be interested in obtaining Deshaun Watson, how much money is it going to take Deshaun for these women to shut up and go away? How long are we going to have to deal with this in terms of, you know, I want Deshaun on my team for the next 8 to 10 years. I don't want him on my team for just one year and then he's going to be spending the next 10 in the state prison. So what are we going to be doing? Because you're speaking about allegations made not just in Texas, but also in California. And according to my man Jay Wex, in California, they take what he did in terms of the sexual assault very, very seriously. So it might be a situation where, look, you know what, we can maybe plead down or maybe we can do some finagling or maybe we can do whatever in this county or this jurisdiction and maybe he gets a slap on the wrist and I don't know this, that, and the other. But, you know, California might be a whole different situation. And we, we can't have Deshaun, you know, he might be, you know, he might his number might be number one playing for Houston. But in the California penal system, he'll be number one eight six five four three seven. So we need to make sure if how strong is the case in California? Where can we go with that? What do we need to do with that? How much is it going to take us financially to get out of this? Because the, regardless of race, when you're Deshaun Watson, you do have enough money to where you can buy your justice. Now, Bill Cosby is sitting there saying, really? But in this situation, yes. Deshaun Watson, I think you have an opportunity to buy your justice. Again, it's going to have to take some, you know, like, hey, you accept this. How much is it going to take for you females to take this money and go away so my man can get on? I mean, what he did was lewd. What he did was crude. Are these women saying that he raped them? Are these women saying that it was, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly. Again, I wasn't there, so I don't know what these le- women are alleging to fit the crime that he could be charged with. I mean, what he did with Jane Doe number two, could that be considered rape? Could that be considered sexual assault? What's the penalty for that in Harris County? What? I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. If, if Deshaun masturbated in front of women, I mean, that's creepy, that's lewd, that's disgusting, that's disrespectful, but is that criminal? It might be something that the league could suspend them over, but would that be considered criminal? I don't know. I don't know. What are the other allegations? Now, they say the other allegations are similar to he came in butt naked, sat down, asked the females to massage his legs, massage his thighs, and then basically perform oral sex. All right, I don't know exactly. That's, that's not rape. I don't. That's not rape. But what is that? That's sexual assault. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Thinking out loud here. I don't know. So moving forward, and is that something to where the women would be like, yeah, look, what happened to you sucks. It's awful. But these, look, these women have careers. These women have uh, uh, families. I don't know if any of these women have children, but I know they have mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and other family members. Do you really want me to uh, put you out there like that? 
massage therapist. No fault of her own. Even if Watson did these things, unfortunately because of the society that we're living in, even if Watson did these things to her, if Rusty Harden puts her name out there in an attempt to smear her, in an attempt to discredit her, basically her career is going to be done. It's going to be over. Does she want to go through with that? Or is she going to be like, look, you know what? I'll take the seven-figure settlement, and at least I'll still have my career, and at least I'll have at least a mill after taxes. I don't know. I, I have no idea. But I think those are the things that uh, are going to come to light if these things really did come into play concerning Deshaun Watson. <laughs> Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The final segment of the podcast. Speaking about what's happening, what's going down in the world of sports. Man to be rich sometimes. Boy, I tell you. You can just, you know, you got enough money. You can buy your justice. You can buy, uh, you can buy a lot of things. You know, one, one thing that uh, kind of helps, you know, as far as, you know, when, when you're black or you're brown or something like that, you know, living in the society that we're living in, living in this country that we're, that we're dealing with today, if you got a name and you got some money, now I'm not saying that's the, you know, I'm not saying that's the end all be all. I'm not saying that's going to protect you completely in terms of if you um, do some things that are naughty. And again, not saying Deshaun Watson, I'm not saying he's guilty, but man, this is a perfect situation to where once again, you know, regardless of race, if you've got some money, it makes it a lot harder to convict you. If you've got a name and you've got some type of celebrity, it makes it a lot harder to convict you. Believe you me, as Orenthal James Simpson, we've had this discussion millions of times throughout the years. I get it. I understand it. But still, it's always funny because if Orenthal James Simpson was just some guy from East L.A. who was uh, laying bricks and he murdered, uh, I'm sorry, he was accused of murdering uh, some well-to-do white woman and some white guy, uh, Orenthal would not have the opportunity to get the great Johnny Cochran. He wouldn't have been able to put together a dream team. And the jurors, who were mostly black, almost all black, would not have acquitted his ass in that situation. So it's all about name. or It has a lot to do about name, situation, and others. And look, man, I've watched a lot of uh, the first 48 Man, I, I see some, like, decisions, you know, because during the show, these detectives go in and they saw the murders of these uh, folks who were murdered. And a lot of time, it's black folks killing black folks, even though when you go to Tulsa and others, it's white folks killing white folks. And how about that, you fucking stupid motherfuckers? Not all of the murders take place in Chicago. You know, when you have the ignorant, when you have the privileged, when you have the racist, when you have the bigoted, and they want to uh, somehow, some way, kind of flip the script, when white folks are being stupid, when white folks are being racist, when white folks are being ignorant concerning stuff, concerning BLM, concerning racist activities, concerning violence, 
And these fucking losers, these fucking idiots, these fucking racists, these fucking bigots want to sit around and turn around and dump on LeBron or dump on others who are bringing this to the attention to the masses and say, well, why don't you talk about all the murders that happened in Chicago? Like, you fucking stupid motherfuckers. Like, only black people kill black people in fucking Chicago. You know who else kills black people? You know who else kills black people in Chicago? White people. You know who else kills people? In Chicago, white people killing white people. Happens all the fucking time. You know where else it happens? In every other fucking city, country, county in this fucking America, in this fucking uh, country that we live in. So please, you dumbasses, give me a fucking break. Give it a rest. Because if you want to, you can go to the Investigative Discovery Channel, and you can all they have plenty of shows where murder comes to the heartland. And they have plenty of shows all the time, marathons, where they always start off the show with, oh, you know, this um, little town in Jerkwater, USA, which is almost all white, a small little rural town. It's so wonderful and a great place to raise a family and just good people and awesome. And we have the opportunity where we can live, where we don't need to lock our doors and we can leave the keys in our in our cars and we don't have to worry about any crime and we don't have to worry about any salacious activities. We don't have to do any of that. Each one of these fucking shows on the Discovery Channel and the Crime Channels where they're discussing someone, a little girl who got murdered, a female who got raped and murdered, a grandma who got murdered, someone, a businessman who got tied up and thrown into a river still living and drowned that way. They always start these fucking shows with, it's such a quaint, small, wonderful little town in the heartland of America and people work hard and they're God-fearing folks and this, that, and the other and we don't have the type of crime. We don't have the type of activity that's up there in the big cities. They always say this shit. We thought we'd see that type of stuff in Chicago and New York City, but never down here. Yeah, okay. The meth labs, the meth culture. Yeah, okay, whatever. So that stuff kind of pisses me off. But getting back to what I was talking about. Yeah, if you're black and you're super duper rich and you've got a little stature to you, uh, yeah, you're better off than uh, than most of us. Even if you're like poor white trash. If you're poor white trash and you go through the justice system and you ain't got no money and you ain't got no stature and you're just a nobody and you might be someone who might have been convicted of a crime or might have uh, done something of a criminalistic nature, yeah, you're you're screwed. You are you you're screwed. You know, I, I, Deshaun Watson is in a much better place in Houston. There's some, uh, you know, redneck jackal from the uh, hills or from the uh, depths of, uh, you know, deep in the heart of. So, you know, just a little food for thought there. All right. Um, and, you know, moving forward, it's going to be interesting to see exactly what the uh, what the league does and how these allegations concerning Watson will affect his trade demands and his value. And if some of these allegations are true, are the Texans even going to want to keep him? Do the Texans, excuse me, do the Texans know something that we don't know? And could that be part of a trade? If, for instance, if the Texans finally do wind up signing Watson and they don't get the mega, mega deal that they want, they just get a huge deal, a great haul, this, that, and the other. But it's like, you know, they, they left some meat on the bones. You know, they, they left some things on the table. Is that going to play into the thought pattern of, well, maybe the Houston Texans know about Deshaun Watson? the type of person that he is more than we know and more that we're letting the public know. So because of that, that affected his draft status. So what we thought Deshaun Watson was was a human being, which also played into 
the um, amount that teams would be paying to get for him because not only are you getting an elite quarterback, not only are you getting a young quarterback who's, you know, top three, top four in the NFL, but you're also getting an absolutely fabulous person, a guy who's going to do great work in the community, a guy who's not going to embarrass your franchise, a guy who's going to be a leader in the locker room. If things start slipping out, if things start coming out, if the Rock, not only the Houston Rockets, but also the uh, Houston Texans start hearing whispers and things that, you know, know, I mean, Deshaun might not have done all the things that uh, these women are saying, but um, if you peel back the layers of his personal life, he, he is kind of kinky. I mean, some of these things in college or some of these things that he's done as a pro, maybe not to that degree, but um, along those lines, maybe the Texans are like, you know what, before the shit really hits the fan and he becomes radioactive, let's just kind of bail and let's just kind of get what we can for him. It'll, it'll be interesting. <clears throat> it'll, it'll super really be interesting. Wendell's World of Sports on the podcast host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us I'm going to end the podcast today with my beloved Georgetown Hoya basketball news I mean my goodness gracious the tournament is not even over yet and already it's like remember I think I tweeted I'm a tweeter I think I tweeted that uh you know when Georgetown lost it's like I'm already more interested in the summer league games than I am in the NCAA tournament and I mean that I really do. I'm, uh, you know, we got until July 4th weekend before we get to see these guys. I'm I'm just frothing at the mouth to see, you know, the improvement, if there's going to be any improvement, what some of the guys that are going to be uh, important pieces in our team next season. I'm, I'm just dying to see what type of improvements Kobe Clark and Jabari Sibley and TJ Berger and Malcolm Wilson, and Colin Holloway. I'm, I'm dying to see from now, this point here in late March, all the way up to Kenner League in July. I'm interested to see what improvements have they made to their game. Coach Couch, I'm quite sure, is giving them the instructions in terms of what they need to do to work on. Coach Ewing has already sat down and talked to them. I'm assuming on what these guys need to do to be part of the improvement, to be part of the rebuilding of this basketball program known as Georgetown University, to where they become they can become fixtures in the NCAA tournament, where they become real contenders for Sweet 16s and Elite 8s and Final 4s and building a program that could be, you know, a nationally top 25 type team, bring it back to the time when not big John Thompson, but his son JT3, consistently had Georgetown in the top 25 during the regular season, competing for Big East Conference Championships, competing for Big East Tournament Championships. Now, again, once they got to the NCAA Tournament, embarrassment set in on numerous occasions, but being a fan of the Georgetown Hoyas, you know, and missing the tournament for so many years, you know, the fact that when they were the three seed, the fact when they were a two seed, the fact when they were a six seed and they were losing to Utah and they were losing to NC State, and they were losing to VCU, and they were losing to Davidson, <clears throat> and they were losing to um, Florida Gulf Coast as two threes and C- three seeds and six seeds, and losing to Ohio. I mean, at the time, it was of great embarrassment and great uh, depression and uh, displeasure. But boy, would it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if I could tell you, Hoya fans, Hoya Saxa, that at the end of next season, the Hoyas were going to be competing 
for a five seed or a six seed in one of the uh, tournament regions. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be awesome? So <clears throat> I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're going to be closer to being a solid NIT squad next season. But <clears throat> you got to take baby steps. You know, the, the, the jump that they made was impressive. I think that the season that they have was overachieving. Just despite not even taking into account the four games that they won uh, during the Big East Conference Tournament, where they no gimmies. There were no gimmies. It wasn't like, thank goodness for a lower seed. Thank goodness for Marquette beating Villanova to where we didn't have to play them. Thank goodness that we all played, that Georgetown played all of the lower seeds in winning the uh, conference championship. No, 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 no. We played the number one seed region as far as Villanova is concerned. We beat them. We beat Creighton, who was uh, the higher seed. So all the way through, we did our deal in terms of playing the competition and playing well. Moving now on now to next year, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm dying to see the improvement that Dante Harris has made uh, from the beginning of the season till the end of the season. And now the next uh, speed check for his improvement and development as a basketball player, college basketball player, will be once the summer league starts, the Kenner league starts, in July, hoping, begging that it will be, because boy, did I miss the Kinder League last season. I've always gotten my, I always needed my fix during the summer of Georgetown basketball. I am intently watching, following those games just as much as I am during the regular season games. So, you know, Aminu Muhammad, he's not going to be playing in the Kinder League. I believe that he's going to be playing for the Nigerian uh, national team in the Summer Olympics, which is awesome, which is fantastic, which is great. Uh, but also, you know, I'm interested to see Tyler Beard. I'm interested to see Jayden Billingsley. I'm really interested to see uh, Jordan Riley. I think of all the freshmen who might play, who might get a chance to play, I think Jordan Riley could be that guy with his athleticism to uh, lend that to our team next season. And also Ryan Matambo, Dikembe Matambo's kid, interested to see what he's going to bring to the table. But, you know, one of the players that we're not going to be having the opportunity to see how much he improved is going to be Cutis Wahab, who entered the transfer portal. <laughs> Him and Dante Harris were going to be the foundation pieces for the rebuilding process, as I mentioned before, to being legitimate, consistent NCAA tournament contenders. Would have been great. He would have eased the transition of top 100 four-star recruit Ryan Matambo. Would have um, done well. Now we're going to have to go with, I guess, Timothy Ego Hefe as the uh, starting center, possibly. I don't think Ryan Matambo, I've, I've only seen highlights of the kid on YouTube, so I can't sit there and be like, give a real educated scattering report on the guy. But it seems slow afoot, needs to be putting on some weight, needs to up the athleticism a little bit. The basically he plays like his father, except his father was seven two and Ryan's like six ten, six eleven. So we'll see. He's coming in as a freshman. I, I, I don't think that he's the type of prospect that are going to immediately change the fortunes around for Georgetown. I don't think this is going to be a guy who even with the departure of Chudas Wahab is going to come in and start getting twenty five to thirty five minutes a game. I think as Ewing has shown with the freshman, I think Matambo is going to be a guy who I mean, I hate to say it getting somewhere between 8 to 12 minutes a game next season. Now, a lot could change. I, I don't know. You know, we have, if Ego Hefe is going to be starting, I, there's no way that that young man is ready to play 
25 to 30 minutes a game. He just fouls too much. He's too inexperienced. So don't think that we can count on Ego Hefe in that situation. Malcolm Wilson still doesn't have the strength, still doesn't have the girth to uh, be a guy that can give you substantial minutes. If he can give you five to seven minutes going into a redshirt sophomore year, that would be great. So Georgetown is going to have to find somebody to go ahead, that power forward center position for an experienced amount of time. It would be Cutis Wahab, but then again, as I mentioned before, he's entering the transfer portal this past season. He averaged 13 points, 7 rebounds, had 8 double-doubles for the season, on the season. This, this is one of the more stupider decisions, I think, that I've, I've, I've heard. He scored 10 points or more in all but 3 of the 15 games after Georgetown came back from that COVID uh, break that they had where they missed a whole bunch of games in January. He was instrumental. I, I, I have... Absolutely, positively, under the, no idea. No idea, no idea. I don't know. For those who are going to sit there and blame Patrick Ewing for this one, I, I don't know where you go with this one. I don't, I don't know exactly what more Patrick Ewing could have done. I mean, he recently praised Wahab as potentially developing him into one of the best Georgetown bigs ever. Now, maybe Deval Simmons, his handler, took a look at that and said, oh, bullshit, he's throwing smoke of our, of, of our ass. Ain't no way cute as Wahab in two more years was going to be as accomplished or better of a college player than Dikembe Mutombo, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning. Shit, that motherfucker might not even reach Jonathan Edwards' status or Othella Harrington's status. So, I mean, come on, man. Cutis, he recorded a double-double his last game of the season against Colorado, 20 points, 12 rebounds. But, I mean, this was a situation where he definitely had flaws in his game. He was not a natural basketball player. You could see him out there thinking all the time. You could see how mechanical he was. You could see how inexperienced he was. You could see why he, while he did make great strides between his freshman and his sophomore year, that he still had a ways to go before he was going to be a Luke Garza type that was going to be dominating the paint. As Duval Simmons, his guardian, claimed that you know, no one, I can say this right now, I'm being biased, but I know I can say this right now that nobody was dominating Q. Nobody was, uh, you know, no one was a better center than Cutis Wahab and this, that, and the other. And basically in the tweet that he was saying right before Cutis announced that he was transferring from Georgetown, the fact that, you know, Cutis was great, Cutis was dominating everybody, nobody was dominating Cutis, except that, you know, it was overlooked because of all the losing that was happening. Man, what the fuck are you talking about, you stupid son of a bitch? What the fucking bullshit are you talking about? So I don't know what we're getting at here. Number one is a team game. If Cutis was dominating so much, if Cutis was one of the better big men so much, how in the hell did Georgetown finish 13-13 and if he was so dominant? Damn, Georgetown didn't have any talent on the squad, but they weren't that talent bereft. So if you're talking about Cutis being so dominant, you stupid son of a bitch, you're blaming everybody else except for Cutis for Georgetown? Not reaching your expectations? Were you in practice every day? Did you see the improvement that Cutis made between his freshman and sophomore season? Where do you think that came from? Your punk ass? Get the fuck out of here with your bullshit. Get the fuck out of here with your stupid ass bullshit. Absolutely unbelievable. You tell me, Duvall. Tell me where the hell Cutis Wahab this season could have played at for a team that was winning, for a team that could have made the tournament for a team that could have been in the top 25 on a consistent basis, a team that could have been in the top 35 for the season on a consistent basis, 
You tell me where Kudiswahab could have gone, where they would have focused him so much on offense, where he would have been the focal point of the offense as much as he was with Georgetown. Tell me the school where he was going to go to, which would have made the NCAA tournament, which would have once in game, which would have given him the ball and told him to go to work as many times as he had the opportunity to do at Georgetown. Tell me, Duvall. Tell me. Because I don't see it. Tell me what school could he have gone to? Tell me, Duvall, what college basketball program could he have gone to this season where he would have been able to play 28 to 32 minutes a game, be the focal point of the offense, and be <clears throat> the interior presence of the team, the, the, the guy that was the linchpin for the uh, back end of the uh, of the team in terms of, of uh, playing on defense. Tell me, <clears throat> was he going to do that at Marquette? Was he going to do that at Baylor? Was he going to do that at Villanova? Was he going to do that at Texas Tech? Was he going to do that at Utah State? Was he going to do that at Loyola Chicago? Was he going to do that at BYU? Was he going to do that at Gonzaga? Was he going to do that at Ohio State? Was he going to do that at UCLA? Tell me, man. Fucking tell me. And now I guess wherever he ends up, I'm quite sure that will be the answer to that question that I asked. But there ain't no way that Cutis would have had the same amount of chances at a school that was NCAA ready. Just absolutely fucking unbelievably stupid. And if we're speaking about, well, you know, his dominance was being overshadowed by the losing, are we speaking now about Cutis's chances of going to the pros, Cutis's chances of playing professionally when his when his career is over at Georgetown? Let me tell you let me tell you something, Duval. I mean, I don't know, maybe you're just too stupid to figure this out or maybe you're biased, so you know, your your dumbass doesn't understand this, but you know who the number one pick was in the NBA draft this season or this past season? It was Anthony Edwards. What was Georgia's record? Was Georgia ranked in the top 25? Did Georgia have an opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament? Now, I know because of COVID, the tournament was shut down, but if the tournament would have been, if they would have been able to play the tournament, Georgia wasn't making the NCAA tournament. Hell, they probably wouldn't have even made the NIT. Georgia was mediocre at best last season. So then why did Anthony Edwards get drafted number one? Oh, because that motherfucker can play! Duvall? Doesn't matter if you're evaluating this from what is his chances of being draft eligible or what are his chances of being drafted at a certain position or as prospects or anything. Scouts don't take a look at the team's record. If Cutis Wahab was good enough to go into the lottery... It doesn't matter if Georgetown would have gone 0-20-fucking-5, you fucking idiot. What did it affect his draft status any? LaMelo Ball didn't even, was, even, was off the radar. Was off the fucking radar. He played a handful of games in Australia. He got drafted number two. James Wiseman played three games for Memphis, quit the team to work out and get ready for the NBA draft. He was drafted number two. So Duvall, what in the name of fuck are you talking about, you stupid son of a bitch? Enos Cantor didn't even play at Kentucky his one year. And he got drafted by Utah in the top five or top six. What the fuck are you talking about? If you're saying that Cutis needs to leave Georgetown because of the losing is 
threatening his ability to be drafted at a certain place, you are a fucking idiot when it comes to that situation. When it comes to that subject. So I don't know, man. I don't know. You know, good luck to you. Uh, more more cutest. If that's going to be your handler, good, good luck to you. Good luck to your family members to put uh, your future into the hands of someone like that. So I, I would question what his motives are. Because who am I going to trust when it comes to basketball? A guy who played and coached in the NBA for over three decades or some clown named Duvall Simmons? Where else are you going to go to get a college degree with the, um, with the stature of Georgetown University? If Cutis is going to stay in college for another two to three years, or he's, or he's going to be able to graduate, because Coach Ewing is going to make sure that you graduate. So, what school else? What school are you going to transfer to where you're going to get a degree which is as prestigious as Georgetown? Tell me. I don't know. Or that's really not the main thing. Your your main thing is getting Q to be the best basketball player that he can, and the college degree is secondary. And if that's the case, then where else are you going to go to? As far as the big man is concerned, who is putting all of his attention, a lot of his attention, most of his attention on your guy to become the best basketball player available or the best basketball player possible, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to, what other coach are you going to go into? Don't talk about Penny Hardaway. If you're, if Cutis was a 6-7 wing, I can understand that. But it ain't, it ain't going to be Penny Hardaway. If it's Jawan Howard, maybe. But you think Cutis Wahab is going to get any run with Michigan this season? You think Cutis Wahab is going to get any type of major run with the recruits that Jawan Howard's bringing in for next season's team? You think Cutis is going to get an opportunity like he had at Georgetown to touch the basketball, to play, to be the role, to play a role as important as the one that he was going to be at Georgetown? Man, what the fuck are you talking about, man? How fucking stupid are you again concerning this situation? And what are your motives? What experience, what knowledge do you have to make such an idiotic, stupid decision? And for Coach Ewing, I don't know what I don't know what he could have done. He gave him the ball, played him a boatload of minutes, regardless of how poorly he was playing. Talked about how much he meant to the program. Talked about how dedicated he was to make sure that he becomes one of the best big men to ever play for Georgetown basketball. And we're speaking about Patrick Ewing here, forgetting the fact that he played 18 seasons in the NBA. The fact that he was named uh, one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history, the fact that he was one of the best centers of his generation, the fact that he's going down as a top 10 all-time NBA center, despite all of those things, he's also spent 15 years as an assistant and coaching in the NBA. What other experience do you need for Cutis Wahab? Duvall? Here's the key for me, man. The moral of the story for me, never feel comfortable about the relationship of a player on this team in the program. Never. Never. Every time you get the sense of, well, I mean, you know, from the outside looking in, we don't know. So every time we get the sense of, oh man, everything is going swimmingly well and this is fantastic and what can go wrong? Some shit like this happens. So I, I don't know. Are you fully comfortable with with uh, Dante Harris after this news? I don't know. Dante could up and transfer tomorrow. I don't know. And we'll be sitting there talking about, how, huh? Dante Harris, Big East Tournament MVP, given the opportunity to play as a freshman, three-star guard who didn't have any offers from high major schools until Georgetown came around, gave him the ball after Jalen Harris left and had him play 35, 36, 37, 38 minutes a game. 
gave him the keys to the car to be the guy, the guy who's going to drive this bad boy for the next three to four years. All of those things were supposed to be one of the guards, supposed to be one of the better guards in the Big East that we moved forward. Now all of a sudden he's transferring. I'm not saying that that is news, but I'm keeping my guard up for the entire four years, no matter how great it is. Hell, next year Georgetown could win the national championship, blow out everybody by 100 points, and uh, be on Sports Center every second, every minute of every day. You never know. Kobe Clark, who might be the third leading scorer on that team, might say, fuck it, I'm going. <laughs> I'm transferring to hell with us. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, you could have a you could have a documentary series about Georgetown basketball next season as they're plowing through everybody. And every time they speak to a player, they just talk about how much they love the program, how much they love the university, how much they love playing for Coach Ewing, how much this program means so much to them. They're joking around. They're clowning around. They're having a great time. Brotherhood, brotherhood, brotherhood. And then once the documentary goes off, <clears throat> Georgetown hadn't even put up the banner for their championship. Six players might say, ah, screw it. We're done. We're leaving. We're moving. We're transferring. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm never going to be comfortable with this team. No matter how good the program's going, no matter how fantastic the relationships might be, I'm never going to feel comfortable. I'm just not. And I don't know that's just a new way of basketball. Players normally transfer, right, if they're not receiving playing time or they're not getting their opportunities or they feel they're being misused or or, or one of them matters. Tell tell me exactly the reason why Cutis Wahab decided to leave Georgetown, for those who know anything about the Georgetown basketball program, because I don't. And for Cutis, I'm here to tell you, the grass ain't green are always on the other side. You can, you can ask James Akinjo. Akinjo was the Big East freshman of the year, played around 30 minutes a game, was supposed to be part of one of the best guard combos by his junior season with Mac McClung, would have had an excellent opportunity to be either first or second team, all Big East this season. What's he doing? He's playing for Arizona. About the same type of player in Arizona, which is uh, facing NCAA um, penalties, self-imposed penalties this year, so they didn't even have an opportunity to make the tournament, and they were borderline at best. So, you know, he plays in Arizona. I'm quite sure playing for Sean Miller. I'm quite sure the check that he got for him from him was uh, pretty nice. But for the most part, I mean, is he closer to being an NBA-ready guard playing for Arizona than he would at Georgetown? Is he getting more opportunities to show his skills at Arizona than he would have at Georgetown? Is he getting more acclaim playing for Sean Miller in Arizona than he would have if he would have been playing for Georgetown? Matt McClung, another guy who was like, you know what? I want to take my talent somewhere else. We're not going to be a very good team next year. I want to play point guard. I want to get myself ready for the NBA draft. So I'm going to have to make a business decision and go somewhere else where I can um, improve my profile. All right, fine. Guess what? He was going to be the guy. You, you wanted to play point guard there, Mac? You would have had the opportunity to play point guard. He got butt hurt because Jalen Harris, this, uh, the Georgetown recruited Jalen Harris as a grad transfer. Well, guess what? Jalen Harris left the team because of family reasons. Guess who would have been the point guard uh, for the squad moving forward there, Mac? It would have been you. And once they found out that you weren't ready to be a full-time point guard, that your talents were more uh, situated to play off the guard the majority of the time, you still would have been a guy who would have been able to lead the Big East in scoring. 
You still would have been a guy who would have been able to raise your profile. You still would have been a guy who would have been able to play some point guard because once we found out that you couldn't guard the opposite uh, point guard for the team and you couldn't run the point guard for the entire game, that then Jalen Harris, or excuse me, Dante Harris would have come in and played. But you still would have got some run as a point guard. You still would have been an all-Big East performer. You still would have averaged 20 points a game. And you still would have got your name out there in terms of being one of the better guards in the country and in the East Coast. No, no, you decided to go to Texas Tech. Well, congratulations. What did Texas Tech do? They played one more game than the Georgetown Hoyas did in the uh, in the NCAA tournament. And did Texas Tech, did they win their conference tournament championship? No, I'm sorry, they didn't. Who did? Oh, the team that you left, the Georgetown Hoyas. Good decision, Mac. You're no closer to being an NBA point guard because guess what? Playing for Chris Beard, who by all accounts now is going to be going to Texas. Good decision on that one, Mac. So now you're stuck in Lubbock, Texas. Now being from a small city in Gates, but Gateville or Gates something, Virginia, that might not be a big deal to them. But yeah, I'm sorry. So you're stuck in Lubbock, Texas. You're no closer to being an NBA point guard. You're no closer to getting the opportunity of being an NBA point guard if you would have stayed and played at Georgetown. So congratulations. Nice job. Way to go. Good decisions. Good decisions. So off the radar. You would have gotten more opportunities to shine playing on Fox, the primetime game, than you would have playing um, on ESPN. How many games did Texas Tech play and on ESPN, by the way? Okay, thank you very much. So these guys who want to transfer, Josh LeBlanc, what did he do? Josh LeBlanc would have gotten over 30 minutes a game playing for Georgetown. But no, he got butt hurt because Coach Ewing yelled at him because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. So he left to go down to LSU. How, how was your season at LSU, Josh? How was that, buddy? Did you make uh, any any all SEC teams? Did you start any games? Did you score any points? Did you do any of those things? Um, because the last time I checked, let me see here, Josh LeBlanc, he averaged in 25 games, three points, four rebounds, one steal, and his free, free throw percentage was 35%. <laughs> Good decision. Again, now I'm quite sure Will Wade took care of you and your family pretty well. But but still, yeah, let me leave a guy in Patrick Ewing who played in the NBA 18 years, coached in the NBA for 15 seasons. Let me let me leave that situation. Let me leave the greatest area in terms of the Washington metropolitan area. Let me leave that area so I can go back down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He's from Louisiana. So let me go down to the state school where I can shoot 35%, hardly get into the game, and average three points and four rebounds. Nice job. Good decision, Josh. Good decision. Way to go. And by the way, did LSU win their conference tournament championship? Did they win their conference tournament championship? I don't know. But I know Georgetown did. So good going, fools. Good going. Good going. But you know what? Hey, maybe Patrick Baldwin Jr. can uh, replace cutest and we're moving forward but you know i i don't know man i thought of all the centers that were supposed to be um leaving i thought malcolm wilson was going to be the guy but i don't know good job cutest and you still have a long way to go q i mean you know i i he was going to be a guy who i think would have been one of the better centers in a couple of years very mechanical again still learning the game but you know I guess, you know, according to Duvall, the, the losing 
was uh, just too much for him to take. So I, I, I hope Q, I hope that uh, wherever you go, that, uh, you know, you do well. And uh, to Deval Simmons, I hope that uh, somehow, someway you uh, suffer some type of harm. Not debilitating, not anything tragic, not anything that's going to, uh, you know, I hope that you get a blister and it hurts for a couple of days. All right, that's about it. I am going to get out of here. I don't know when I'm going to uh, publish this bad boy because right now Oral Roberts and, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, who was that playing over there? Oregon State and, um, oh, Oregon State and Loyola, uh, Chicago are playing. So I guess I'll check a little bit of that out. But if, but if they show Sister Jean three times in one minute, click, I'm turning that off. Sister Jean's prayer to the, yeah, like, like the Lord really gives a shit about who wins a fucking basketball game. Sister Jean. So if Sister Jean really is powerful enough at 101 years old to uh, get the uh, newsreels from the Lord in terms of who he wants to win, should Oregon State find some 101-year-old uh, sister, some nun, that kind of, you know, maybe have a three-way conference call with the Lord, that kind of state her case on why the Lord should want uh, Oregon State to win? I don't know. Moving on, moving on. Oh, the NCAA tournament, so fantastic. All right, man, I'm going to get out of here with a little update. Public Enemy Fight the Power 2020, 1989, another summer that was our generation's, black generation's, black community's national anthem for my generation's. Night to see that is being brought back because even now, 30-something years later, the words, the sentiments are still the same. Love, Peace, unity, Wendell's world is sports with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. I'm out. Flav, Chuck, take it away. The year is 2020, the number. Another summer get down. Sound of the funky drummer, music hitting our heart, cause I know you got soul. The information age got him seeing what's really wrong with these racist days. I honor the strong and pity the weak. Your thoughts run your life, be careful what you think. Haiti beat France in century 17. Salute Toussaint and Dessaline. And I do love France, know what I mean? It's a system I'm talking, nobody's agreeing. They say it's suicide when dead bodies are swinging. Cowards are hunting black men, that's what I'm seeing. How many toasters have been burnt down? And once Central Park was a thriving black town. Yo, Chuck, I'm fighting the power right now. Thanks to you, Flav, and P.E. Putting it down, putting your life on the line so I can rap now. The next generation still singing Fight the Power. Fight the Power!
Longevity is what I'm wearing all black for. For comrades who don't fought without me, it's not to try and change our thoughts about me or to redirect your reports about me. Dear white people, you should take a course about me. Cause is it the long yin it four finger ring? The sciences of the arts, the songs we can sing? I really wanna know why y'all so scared. Probably cause the promised land we almost dead. But look, I think of images that fuel my youth. Interviews by Craig Hodges and Abdul Raouf. Examples like Olympic black power salutes and panther troops. I saw as I pursued my truth. If racism is a cancer, black thoughts the answer. Gotta get up off the back porch. Emancipate your mind. Get your bodies back from ransom. And all black hands up for the anthem. Yo, yo, check this out, man. Bring that beat back, Bring man. Bring that beat back. Two, People stronger than this evil, smashing your power structure, melanin royal ego, system designed to kill and unprotect, worldwide hit the streets just to get some respect, our fight and our rights for freedom will never waver, justice Breonna Taylor, salute Chuck and Flavor, feel the same anger since Radio Raheem died, black power to the people, push forward pride. Fighting power like it's a hot dog, born to fight, I made it off the block though, thought he had a gun and he was black, that's the combo, the police killed George having the convo, they killed Malcolm X, they killed Dr. King, they gave us guns and dope, they want to stop a king, trying to erase our history, stop and think, history class ain't tell us about Juneteenth, cops don't give a damn about a Negro, pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a key, bro, living life on welfare, the last one who cared was Obamacare, round 12, nose kind of bloody, gotta keep fighting, Trump through the North Korea, they respect violence. If you ain't trying to have your city on fire for some respect on our name, we come from golden diamonds. Fight the power. 